in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, our Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, a treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, our good one. down please because I'm a little bit of a rude creature I forgot last time when father uh, when we had a visiting priest father Veslin from the uh, Archangel Michael Church at Homebush is under the Serbian church and I forgot to mention you I forgot to welcome you because I'm rude sometimes I'm just I forget so sorry about that. So today we have Father Vesson for the second time. So you're Australian born, are you? No, you're born in Serbia. All right, but you came young, right? Uh, 18, can't tell from your accent. And he brought today, which is very nice of him, he promised he's gonna bring us the relics of St. John, which he was given uh, while he was over in San Francisco, one small part of his body. And also the pouch, a part of the pouch that St. John used to carry with him. Was that when he used to carry the icon around with him? I think he used to have the icon in his pouch. Well, one of these pouches, and Father Veslin brought the relics over in this pouch. So this pouch is not only sanctified because he brought the relic in, in it, but also because this was one of St. John's pouches. And, of course, we have backup of this tradition from the fact that St. Paul's handkerchiefs were sanctified and St. Peter's, even St. Peter's shadow, when he would walk, if someone would go near his shadow, even that was able to cause miracles. Of course, the Protestants don't believe in any of this, but that shouldn't concern us. We're not here 
to prove to the Protestants the truth of orthodoxy. I'm here to do a talk for orthodox Christians. That's different. And I don't have that gift. I don't, I'm not very good at that. If I've got any strength, it's that I do talks for orthodox Christians. All phones off, please. And there are other priests in the Orthodox Church who are gifted to be able to help the heterodox as well. Now, in one of my first talks on the lives of saints, I mentioned a story about Saint Paisius, which a lady that I knew when I first came to the church, she told me. She said, when Saint Paisius visited Australia in 1977, as the plane just came over onto the Australian land, just on top, Northern Territory, wherever it comes across, he felt the presence of demons in Australia. And I relayed that to you. Later on, someone said to me, who read it in his life, said, that's not how it is. I go, oh, how was it? And they said, this, this, and this. And I said, oh, I mucked that up. But it's not important that I make a mistake because that's, that's humbling. But the fact is that... Well, firstly, we deleted it from the talk. So that's why none of you heard of it. Some of you may have heard of it when you were here. So we deleted it from the talk so we don't scandalise people, make mistakes. But also, we've got to be careful when we hear things from people. Now, this woman who told me this, she was a scripture teacher. She had gone into the schools here in Sydney and taught scripture to a lot of Greek Orthodox, hundreds and hundreds of them. And I trusted her that she was saying the right thing. Now I realise that she was wrong on that. But she's also said another thing, which was very interesting at the time. She goes, and she said it with such passion. She said, God will forgive every sin except, and she was grinding her teeth. That's the worm, you know, the worm joke that I say with the worm without, with, with teeth. She said, except for the sin of homosexuality. God will never forgive that. Now imagine she goes and says things like that. God forgives every sin. So we've got to be careful when you're hearing. Also, when I say things, it doesn't mean that everything that I say is 100% because I'm not an ecumenical council. That's why you read and you check. Check what's being said by anyone. Only the church is perfect, not the priests or the bishops, except for the Pope. When he speaks, he's perfect. But in the Orthodox Church, no one's perfect. Remember that. So that's important. So I'll give you the correct story. In 1977, St. Paisius, along with Abbot Basil of Stavronikita Monastery, Manathos, which, which I met many years ago, travelled to Australia at the invitation of the local church to minister to the Greek Australians among the Orthodox. St. Paiskius said the following in his exact words, quote, while we were in the aeroplane, I felt something inside of me for a moment. I asked what country were we looking at down below? It was Syria. And he continued on. It has a lot of grace because of the ascetics who lived in its deserts. I felt the same way about the Holy Land says St. Paisios. 
all those areas, all the, the Arabic areas there, Antioch, Damascus, Syria, Lebanon, were filled with ascetics, but also over the centuries with martyrs. Greece, you cannot walk anywhere without there being something holy there. There's relics, miraculous icons, places of martyrdom. Europe, before the schism, full as well. Russia, because of the ascetics, when Russia converted in the 10th century, and also the martyrs that the Church of Russia produced because of communists, because of the communist enemies there. Romania, Bulgaria. Later, he continues, I felt a certain chill, a demonic radiation, and I heard the loudspeaker announce that we were flying over Pakistan. Christianity did not really spread in those areas, which were a lot of them under the, uh, the Persians, etc. I don't know with Pakistan, whether that was ex-Persia, but a lot of those areas over there, it didn't really spread. In Australia, I felt that the country hadn't been sanctified yet by the blood of martyrs and holy labourers, meaning ascetics, but that it will be sanctified in the future. The truth of the matter is, we do not have in Australia not one canonised saint, not one. We don't even have an account of a martyrdom in Australia. In America, in North America, Canada, that they have a lot of saints. Relics, icons, there's one here, St. John, whose body is incorrupt and whole. And I'm going to discuss other ones there. There are a lot of saints in America. But Australia, no. Now, does that mean that Australia has never produced the saint? If Australia has never produced the saint, then there's no point in struggling. We can all go back and just lead a godless, pagan life. There's no hope. Australia has not produced any official canonised saints. But a person who has cancer or leukaemia or other things who, are, who die in repentance and even if they're not completely purified but with the commemorations of the liturgies and the, the memorial services for them, we can they can be lifted out of Hades into heaven. So we have thousands of saints. There are a lot of people, could be priests, it could be monastics, it could be other people, who are saints. See, everyone who's saved becomes a saint. Everyone. And there's no martyrs here as well. Martyrs, unless you suffer, that's a form of martyrdom. But let's just say where we are attacked by 
Muslims or attacked by others and asked to deny our faith or we die. That has not occurred here yet. But St. Paisio says it will occur. These are saints that God will glorify and wants us to venerate publicly. As I was uh, preparing this talk, I finished the talk, and then last night, as I was reading the uh, Simono Petra version of the lives of Saints of Synaxarian, I came across St. Hilary, Bishop of Poitiers, January the 13th, I can't say that name, but anyway. He's a very, very famous holy father of the Western Church before the schism. And it says in his life, which I loved, it said, he preached the true faith with great eagerness, exhorting pagans, exhorting, what does exhorting mean? So I looked that up, because some of you, your English is not very good, even some of you are born here might not know, even know what it means. Exhorting is like encouraged, urged, persuaded, like what I'm doing today. I'm trying to encourage you, I'm trying to urge you to change your life, persuade you to lead a spiritual life, etc. So it says, he preached the true faith with great eagerness, exhorting pagans to become Christians and Christians to become saints. So I'm not here, as I said at the beginning, I'm not here to convert pagans. I think I would assume that all of you are baptised Orthodox Christians. So my job, and the job of all priests, is to encourage those who are Orthodox to become saints. We are all called to become saints. I thought that was very interesting, so I changed it and inserted that in. In the previous talk, sorry, let's go through the talk titles. In talk 78, this title was, Why do the demons fear when we read the lives of saints? And I think that was the one that maybe you were at, and I forgot, maybe that was the next one. Talk 79, why are the lives of saints considered the encyclopedia of orthodoxy? See, people say, oh, I might go to a seminary, I might study theology at Sydney University. Why would you do that? But the lives of saints are considered the encyclopedia. In other words, if you read the lives of saints, you end up with a theological degree. People don't know that. Why do the demons fear when we read the lives of saints? And they do fear. They hate the lives of saints. And if you listen to Talk 78, I've explained it there. In a nutshell, they hate the lives of saints because the lives of saints... In other words, if the demons had a choice, okay, they have this Christian in front of them and the Christian's struggling. And they say, uh, he's reading the gospel. Should we bother him? Should we attack him, make him sleepy, make him sick, make him have thoughts, give him distraction? Or they have another person who's reading the lives of saints. Who are they going to attack the most? Now, some of you might say the gospel, of course, because the gospel's Christ's teaching. And the answer is no. They'll rather attack the person reading the lives of saints because the lives of saints are the gospel in practice. By reading the lives of saints, we 
learn what the gospel means. See, that's why the Protestants are all over the place because they have rejected the lives of saints. And that's why they have millions of interpretations of the, of the gospel and they're a mess. But the truth of the matter is the devil does not care as much unless the person's reading and trying to penetrate that because you cannot understand the Gospels without the lives of saints. And I went through Talk 78 and I explained that using examples of so many holy fathers and saints of the church. Talk 80, which was the last talk, is the veneration of saints and belief in their prayers essential? So I'm going to read you the blurb from that last talk. The first paragraph. This talk is a continuation of talk 78 and 79. In the Orthodox Church, there are many beliefs, customs and traditions, but not all of these are essential for one's salvation. The beliefs required of all Orthodox Christians are called dogmas. A few examples are the dogmas that Christ was fully man and fully God, that the Virgin Mary is the mother of God, and that the Holy Spirit is God. The question arises, is the veneration of the saints and the belief that they pray for us and help us and others a dogma of the Orthodox Church and therefore essential for every Christian? And I showed in that talk, with God's help, that the answer is yes, it is a dogma. You cannot say, oh, if I want to believe it, I can, or if I don't, I don't. Like the tradition of the third day memorials, ninth day, fourth day when someone dies, you know, that's not a dogma. It's, it's, it's a tradition, but it's not a dogma. If someone doesn't do it, it doesn't mean that they are denying the faith. Then I went through in the last talk, I had a section on anathemas. The church anathematized those who either denied or distorted the dogmas of the church. For example, what was the first ecumenical council about? The first ecumenical council confessed that Christ is truly God, while Arius was saying he wasn't God. And the church anathematized those who denied the, the divinity of Christ. They actually pronounced anathemas. And anathema was that you're cut off from the church, that you cannot be saved. The second ecumenical council confessed the divinity of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is also God. And they anathematized, cut off from the church, those who denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. The main person who pushed this dogma was St. Basil the Great. Third ecumenical council was to do with the Theotokos, because Nestorius, patriarch of Constantinople at the time, he was saying that Mary gave birth to Christ as the highest form of someone holy, like a saint, but not God. And the church says, no, she is Theotokos, which in Greek means she who held God. The fourth ecumenical council confessed the two natures of Christ as 
In other words, perfect God and perfect man. Those who didn't believe in that were anathematized. The fifth ecumenical council had to deal with those who were saying that there's no resurrection of the dead. And they also said that human souls existed before. They were somewhere floating around and when they came into existence, I would say as a person with a body, then these pre-existing souls came into the person. The church denied that and said no and anathematized those who persisted. And that's why God allowed that a miracle with the seven youths where they fell asleep and a couple of hundred years later they came back to life because at that time there was this controversy going on that people were believing that there's no resurrection. And the sixth ecumenical council was to do with two wills, that God has two wills, a human will and a divine will. The heretics were saying that he's got only a divine will. And the seventh ecumenical council dealt with the veneration of icons and saints, because as I said, during that time, it was forbidden to venerate icons. It was forbidden to believe in saints. It was forbidden to venerate their relics. They were, they were destroying them. It was forbidden to confess the mother of God, to pray to her. It was forbidden, forbidden. Everything was forbidden, except for venerating the cross. So even though the Baptists came about a few centuries ago, it's like these people were Baptists. Protestants, that's, where, that's because some of them, the real extreme ones, they believe only in the cross. So the devil's been working hard over the centuries to eradicate from mankind uh, the truth. He doesn't want people to venerate relics of saints. He doesn't want people to venerate saints, icons. He doesn't want any of that. Why? Because this is necessary for salvation. I'm going to read you something which is said on the Sunday of Orthodoxy. That whoever says that the Pope is the head of the church and not Christ, and that he has authority to admit persons to paradise with his letters of indulgence or other passports, and can forgive sins as many as a person may commit if such a person pay money to receive from him these indulgences, that is, licenses to sin, let every such person be anathema. Now, I can tell you that there are a lot of anathemas out there a lot. There's anathema, whoever says that Christ on the, during the Last Supper used unleavened bread, that means bread without yeast, let them be anathema because the Catholics use the wafers and no, no yeast. There are other anathemas, especially during times when the heretics were fighting the Orthodox. So when there was times like some parts of Russia where the Lutherans were attacking and trying to change their, their faith, or parts of the Greek parts where these Protestants were spreading their germs around and saying things that were anti-Orthodox, 
the Orthodox Church summoned councils and, and pronounced anathemas against those who believe things that are contrary to the Orthodox Church. I'm going to explain to you a mistake that I made, but I learned after years. To me, when I heard these anathemas, I thought anathema is for all the Catholic people, all the Protestant people. When they were anathematizing those that believed in Lutheran beliefs, they're also the church anathematizing the Lutherans. Things that were against the Baptists when they were spreading their disease around everywhere. It was against the Baptists. So I ask now the question, do the anathemas that the church pronounces apply to those of other religions, Protestants, Catholics, Jews, maybe Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, whatever? Because I have in there even like uh, anathemas to those who believe in uh, Hindu ideas and things like that because Orthodox Christians were being influenced. Orthodox Christians from the influence, say, of the Eastern religions were saying that we are reincarnated, that we are, in our past life, we could have been an onion, and now we're a human. But later on, we might become a rock or a bee or whatever. See, and the church says no. No, whoever believes in reincarnation, anathema, you are cut off from the church. You cannot be saved unless, as St. John explained it last time, unless you repent. There's always time for repentance, but woe to us if we die having not repented. And remember that the church also anathematized heretics within the church, bishops, etc., who were teaching heresy. They anathematized them after they died. Now that is really bad. Now there are those who are like um, know-it-alls and oh, how can the church do that and it's a mistake and it was the times and the way that they lived in those times. But now we're enlightened. Now we're enlightened people. We don't say anathemas. So some of the liberal Orthodox church, you won't even hear the word. Unless you call them a name, then they might anathematise you. If you say something personal to them, you're ugly. Anathema but not if you speak against Christ. So the answer is to this, no, it only applies to the orthodox or those who know the truth and deny or distort it. In other words, the anathemas are centred on the children of the church, not against your next-door neighbour who may be Buddhist or the person down the street who may be Protestant. They are centred on those who are told the truth and deny the truth, not against the others. 
St. Paul says clearly, who are we to judge those outside the church? We judge those inside the church. The church is responsible for her children. We do not hear anathemas against all the Muslims or all the Jews. But, but, but the Jews don't believe in Christ. They're waiting for him. Yes, that's true. They are waiting for him and they're wrong. Are they consciously wrong? Have they, for example, seen a miracle or an angel appeared to them or something like that which showed them you're wrong? The Orthodox Church is correct. Christ is the Messiah. There's a lot to do with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which means you see the truth through a miracle or something like that. You see the truth, but you deny it. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it's not forgiven in this life or in the life to come. Meaning, if the person doesn't repent, then, then it's not going to be forgiven them. You've got to repent to, for, to be forgiven. So someone could be blaspheming the Holy Spirit, one of us, But then we repent. Then God forgives us. There are saints who are asked the question, Holy Elder, what happens to those who are outside the church? And the elders say, none of your business. God loves them more than you. And he's doing all that he can to bring them to salvation. The elders say, which is inspired from God, if you, being orthodox, know the truth, consciously you know the truth, and you deny it, you will go to hell. You are under the anathemas of the church. So, for example, an orthodox person comes to me. They were baptised from young. I say, do you know that Christ is God? They go, no. Isn't he just a human being? Isn't he just an ordinary teacher like Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad? So what do I do? He just blasphemed. So what do I do? Do I start saying, anathema, anathema, curse? Do I say that? Or do I think to myself, is this person denying the truth? This person doesn't even know what the church is. This person doesn't know him, but he's orthodox. He's ignorant. And a lot of times I feel inspired to commemorate them. I still commemorate them, even though, strictly speaking, should they be commemorated? Are they orthodox Christians? Or someone's leading a really bad life. They're living with, a, say, a man's living with a woman, or other people practicing other dirty things like and you say to yourself, should you commemorate? Officially, no. But then I say, but are they denying? Do they actually even know that it's wrong? And a lot of times the answer is no. But there are others who are conscious of what the church teaches. They've got knowledge and they decide not to listen and continue their sins or their blasphemies in an unrepentant manner, them, I can't commemorate them. 
And St. John says in his epistle that you pray for those who, I can't remember how he said it, he says, um, I don't say to pray for those who are sinning. He says, oh, I can't remember now, but he, it's to do, anyway, the explanation is St. John the theologian says, you cannot pray for those who are sinning and remaining unrepentant. You can't pray for them in the sense of the liturgy, but there are those who are ignorant. And a lot of times when you commemorate those who are ignorant, they change. So that's the truth. Now, there are Roman Catholics, for example, maybe theologians, priests maybe, maybe even some people in the Roman Catholic Church. They know and they say, oh, the Holy Fire only comes out for the Orthodox. And then the devil says to him, yeah, but the patriarch lights it in the, in the tomb, even though the Jewish police, they search the patriarch for all, and they even search the tomb. Not only that, the Armenian patriarch, patriarch, which we are not in communion with, but there's a tradition there, they allow them the Armenian patriarch is allowed to go in when the Greek patriarch is going. He goes completely unvested except for his stikharion, the white, the white tunic that he has underneath, and he goes in, searched completely, and the Armenian patriarch is allowed to go. Now, the Armenians, they hate, especially the Armenians in Jerusalem, they hate the Greek Orthodox because we have the, the rights we are the main people there of the Holy Sepulchre. And it's always been like that. Once the Armenians, I think it was, they locked us out some centuries ago. They said, we're going to light it. We're going to light it. And when the Greeks were coming in procession to the Holy Sepulchre, some of you have been there, they've got these big, massive doors the doors could be as high as that fan. They've got these columns. And they'll go in there and the Armenians locked them out and said, we're going to light it. Because by tradition, it's always been an Orthodox and a Greek. When the Greeks got there and their doors were locked, they started crying, they got upset, very upset. And a hodza, those ones that scream out from their minarets, uh, you know, when you go to Arabic countries, you know, they, 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 you know, they use tape recorders now. But anyway, he was up there, and he was looking at all this commotion going down there, ha, 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 the Orthodox, the Christians, what a mess. So just as all this commotion was going on, suddenly the one that was calling out, the, the hodza, noticed from the sky this light come down and the left column, which is, the, which is the, to this day, cracked and out of there came the fire and lit the Greek patriarch's candles. The Hodza then said, great is the God of the Christians and he was attacked by the Muslims, knocked off the minaret and cut up into pieces. He became a saint of the Orthodox Church. 
the Armenians got upset. So the Armenians, if they knew something was false, they would be the first to come out and say, the Greek patriarch, he lit the candles. But let's just say he's in on it. Maybe they give him some money, American dollars. Maybe. Who knows? Do they search him as well? Maybe the police don't. I don't know. I think they search him as well, but who knows? But what does God do? When God does a miracle, he makes sure that it is clear. It's not like the Catholic there's always little visions. The sun was moving and three little kids saw it. Or Bernadette of Lourdes and Lourdes or whatever. All these things, all these little kids seeing all these sun dancing and all these messages that Russia's going to convert to Roman Catholicism as if Russia doesn't believe in Christ. But they're going to convert and they're going to submit to the Holy Father of Rome. No, Orthodox miracles are not like that. Orthodox miracles are tangible. So what does God do to make sure it's tangible? At the time that the patriarch candles, he holds 33 candles and 33, and the way it is, he kneels in front of the tomb, then all of a sudden there's a bluish kind of light that comes from the tomb and from the slab, he lights his candles automatically. But at the same time, in the sepulchre, where there's thousands of people, some of the oil lamps light up on their own. But maybe they're electronically made like that to light up. Okay. See how the devil just doesn't stop with the, with the excuses. Anyway, but then people notice these like lightning in the church. Lightning. And some of those lights come down and light the candles of the Orthodox Christians that are in the church. But to make it even better, making sure that it's a 100% miracle, for the first 10 minutes or so, the fire does not burn like normal fire. So everyone's holding 33 candles wrapped up because Christ died 33 years old as a human. And these flames are big. Look at that flame. On one candle, imagine 33. And the flames are big. And there's videos, and plus I know people that have gone, I haven't been on that day. Uh, people are putting the fire on their faces, on their babies, on their beards, on their arms. It doesn't burn. I have a problem with that. What my problem is, if those who are Coptic that are there and the Armenians that are there, they see that miracle, do they get a prick of conscience and say, oh, maybe the Orthodox Church is the truth? But then they deny it. Perhaps they get the anathema, even though they're not children of the Church. Therefore, the veneration of saints 
and belief in their intercessions is a dogma of the Orthodox Church and therefore essential for every Christian, Orthodox Christian. And when we say veneration, it means when we honour the saints and glorify them, etc. So how do we know we're on the right track? How do we know that we do not fall under the anathema to do with the saints? Do we believe in the saints properly? Do we venerate them properly? St John, whose relics I have here that Father brought, gives us four points, or I summarised it. St John of San Francisco left Orthodox Christians the following statement. He always used to say, remember the saints. Remember the saints. And as you hear from the other talks, St John was centred on the veneration of the saints. He produced lives, he, he made services, he made sure Western saints that the Orthodox had forgot about, that they were put into the Orthodox calendars. It went on and on, all the things that I read in past talks. So let's have a look. How do we do this? Number one, by constantly learning about them and reading their lives. You ask yourself, do I love reading about the lives of saints and am I moved by those lives? If the answer is no, then there's trouble. If the answer is yes, you're on the right path. And I've met people that say to me, I have not really much interest in the lives of saints. And I say to them, look, I think you may be ignorant, but you better change that attitude because it's not proper. You have to have a zeal, a love, which we'll hear more about soon. Number two, by making them known to others and speaking of them, printing their lives and teachings and distributing them, distributing their services and their icons to people in the church. We are adding all the time forgotten saints of the Western Church, while the Roman Catholics at simultaneously are removing the ancient saints of their church. That's number two. Do we talk about the saints? I read the other day in Saint so-and-so that he did this, or she said that, or whatever. That's good. And do we, if we can't print them ourselves, we can... Some people might get them from the internet, cut and paste. Everyone's got computers and they're just about. Distribute them or buy books and distribute them. Number three, by venerating their icons and relics. That's another healthy sign. Do you and do I feel grace when we venerate their icons and relics? Do we honour the icon? Do we honour the relics? Do we feel the sanctification that comes from that? Number four, by praying to them, attending church services for them, like a lot of you did today, singing their troparia and contakia, which we just did before the talk, and reading or singing their akathas and canons. 
They are the healthy signs. If, you, if, if we don't have that, then you've got to relook at yourself because you may fall under the anathema of the church, even if someone doesn't pronounce it to you. We don't want that. In the last three talks, 78, 79 and 80, I read through a list of saints who themselves read the lives of saints when they were young, etc., and continued this practice when they were older. I also read quotes from different saints on the importance of reading the lives of saints. I made a list of 27. A lot of them I have said before. I've also found some new ones. People have, have given me feedback and said that they love listening to that list. And I'm going to do it again quickly. I found a new one. Just last night I read this. Saint Irinachos of Rostov, 1616. At the age of six, Saint Irinachos told his mother that he would be a monk and would become a guide for the Christian people. Six years old. After his father's death, his mother settled with her children in Rostov, in Russia, and there he found a like-minded companion, a friend, named Agathonikos. Their friendship grew in the spirit as they read the lives of saints together and discussed uh, things about their lives that were well-pleasing to God. Now, there's, as I've said before, there are parents who say, I don't want my child to become a monastic, so I'm not going to give them the lives of saints. That's a demonic statement. Nevertheless, let me just tell you something in this life. Saint Irinachos did become a monk. His friend, Agathonikos, remained in the world as a layperson. He did not become a monk, even though he read the lives of saints too. Number two, a new one. Saint Theophan the Recluse, who passed away in 1894, he said, quote, Orthodox Christians should concentrate on what would benefit their souls, that is, the reading of the lives of saints, as well as holy scriptures and the lives of the holy fathers. Saint Theophan the Recluse says, we should do what benefits our souls. Unfortunately, including myself, we do a lot of things which do not benefit our souls. Does that mean we're going to go to hell? No, we're just distracted, slack some of us as well. But let's force ourselves to concentrate to some extent. We don't have to read the lives of saints all day. But to some extent, they should be part of our life and do a little bit, even if you read the prologue which is short, start, start small and then go on. Make it part of your life. Make it part of your, of your body clock so that if you don't do it, you feel that you're missing something. Unfortunately today, the internet, social media, etc., a lot of those things have killed us. They're killing souls. Does that mean we don't go at all on the computer? Well, some monks do, some nuns do in the world. But it's pretty much here to stay, isn't it? But the point is, why should we allow it to totally take over where I hear, a lot of people tell me, I don't read the lives of saints anymore and I don't read the holy scriptures anymore because 
I'm on the computer and I can't stop. In other words, it's an addiction. St. Paisio says, number three, read the lives of saints as much as possible because these lives emphasise repentance and you can be helped by them. The lives of saints bring us to repentance. I use that as my indicator when I'm doing a talk. If someone says to me, oh, Father, oh, what a, it was a fantastic talk, really? How did you feel? Oh, it was so exciting. It was really interesting, this and that. And then it's like I wish someone gets a walking stick and pulls them out of the way. Then comes another person. Um, they're a bit funny looking. They look a bit calm and something. Go, how did you feel? I go, I feel like zeal to, I want to have zeal to start struggling. I want to repent more. I started thinking about my sins. I started thinking about the next life. That's the sign that something's from grace. The other person, same talk, didn't feel that. That's what I look for. And that's what the lives do. When you read them, it brings you to repentance. It gives you zeal to struggle. If you, when you do something spiritual, whether you go to a talk or listen to something on the, a talk on the, on your computers, or a sermon, or you read a book, the fruits, the proper fruits of that reading or listening to is zeal to struggle, self-condemnation, I'm slack, I've got to be better. I want to change your life. I want to repent, to improve, and to be saved. All that is the stamp that that's from the Holy Spirit. Anything else outside of that is dangerous. St. Paisus continues, the Synaxarian, in other words, the 12 volumes, is very helpful because one can find in these books whatever vitamin his soul is in need of, spiritual vitamin. The life of the saint of the day is also beneficial. So as Orthodox Christians, we need to read the life of the saint of the day so that we, when we're in our day, our daily life, we know what today's saint is. And a little bit during the day, you might think of aspects of the life. That's good. If, you might, if you're all day and you're really busy and you're out of it, distracted, children, jobs, whatever, but a few seconds here and there, you come to the same. That's better than nothing. That's good. And the lives of saints, St. Paisus says, is like vitamins. Like we need vitamin A, vitamin B, vitamin C. Vitamin D, E, there's all different Bs, B1, B2, B3, B4, 5, 6. That's the same as in the, when you read the lives of saints. There are vitamins there to keep us healthy. What? Like what? What can we read in there that might that keep us healthy? Well, we see, for example, how the saint brought up their children. That's a vitamin. Or how did the saint deal when they fell into sin? How did the saint deal with hopelessness, etc.? All that is vitamins to keep us healthy because a lot of us have malnutrition because we don't take vitamins. 
Which vitamins? Vitamin A. I'm not here for that. You go to a doctor or to a, what do you call those people? The naturopaths. Go all to them. They'll help you with that. I'm here to talk about spiritual vitamins. And our souls are lacking spiritual vitamins because we do not read the lives of saints. Number five. I'm not going to say the names of everyone. I'm just going to read them. He loved going to church and reading the gospel and found his delights in the lives of saints. Though that one there I remember, St. Ignatius Branchinov. And he found delights. And I said the other time, look how he said, he goes, he loved going to church and reading the gospel and found his delights in the lives of saints. It's like a special thing. In reading the lives of saints, he found delights. Number six the saint that we have here with us tonight. When he was young, he loved above all to read the lives of saints. Above all. Is that blasphemy? If St. John was a blasphemer, then why would God make his relics to be incorrupt and be a wonder worker, full of miracles? Because he wasn't a blasphemer. But someone would say, but isn't that blasphemy to say? Above all, he loved reading the lives of saints. Why doesn't it say, above all, he'd rather live in the Bible and then the lives of saints? Are we going to question God now? Then you might say, but they have, we have saints that make mistakes. Is it a consensus? Is it something that all the saints believe? The answer is yes. Another one, a Russian saint. He learned to read by passionately immersing himself in the Holy Scriptures and the lives of saints. In that case, he passionately immersed himself. He read the Holy Scriptures and the lives of saints. And there's a lot of lives that do have that, but what I've read, the majority emphasise the lives of saints. Here's another one, Saint Nymphon. He knew the scriptures by heart and was enthralled by the lives of saints. Now, some of you might not know what enthralled means, so we have to use the thesaurus. So I found a few there. He was captivated when he read the lives of saints. He was fascinated when he read the lives of saints. Number nine, another Russian saint. He gave himself zealously and attentively to the study of the Holy Scripture and the lives of the saints, Saint Seraphim Dombos. The next one, a, a recent martyr, Saint Voluminos of Jacob's Well. Together with his brother, he showed a particular enthusiasm for prayer, the reading of the lives of saints, and the hymns of the church. I'm not saying that you don't read the scriptures. We should have enthusiasm for the scriptures. That's, that's 100%. If you read them on their own, you're going to become a heretic. And deceived. The next one. And the hymns of the church. I want to dedicate, God willing, maybe next year, I want to do, a, I want to do some, a series of talks where I'm going to get the service books of the saints. 
and I'm going to read their life, and then we're going to read through their services to see how beautiful and how the hymns of the church are an expression of the lives of the saints or the event. It might be Theophany, the, the Nativity of Christ. I'm talking about the saints now. And you see aspects of the life within these services or the acathists or the canons. The next one. He was known to be intensely interested in the spiritual life of the Orthodox Church and church services, this person, and at the end, and especially reading the lives of saints. That was Father Rostislav, who was the priest of Cabramatta, who they say could be one of Australia's first saints. They say he was a very holy person. I never met him, but his fruits were that because of his prayers, he sent a lot of young men to Jordanville to become priests. A lot of the priests in the Russian church today are because of him. From their fruits, you will know them. Number 12. As a schoolboy, he read the lives of the holy martyrs with great interest. Now, I'm against when people read one type of thing. For example, you people that just read ascetical saints. Because after a while, they, they will become brainwashed and think that they're ascetics. Or people that just read about martyrs or confessors. No, that's why when we produced those lives of saints that we produced 30 volumes at the back, I made sure that every volume has four or five different saints. A martyr, a confessor, an ascetic, uh, a married saint, etc., etc. Always an assortment. That's the safest. Don't stick on one type because it can lead to deception. The question is, why did this person, he read the lives of the holy martyrs with great interest. This person later became a, uh, a bishop. Now, during the times of the Turkish yoke, when we were under the Turks, Serbia, Bulgaria, Greeks, etc., there are a lot of lives of saints circulating, martyrs, a lot of martyrs. So does that go against what I just said? And the answer is no. There are, there are two scenarios. One is that because of the times that people were living in, they were producing the lives of saints to help them, which in that case were the martyrs. Had they confessed, they wouldn't become Muslim, and that was inspiring Greeks, Serbians, Bulgarians, etc., when did this person live? Maybe he lived in the time of the communists where a lot of lives of saints that were produced during communist times were to do with confessors of the faith, like people who confessed orthodoxy. No, he was born around 1880s. He later on lived during communist times. How do we explain that? Then why was he one-sided? Because I believe that some people are inspired. He was inspired to read the lives of the holy martyrs because he was going to become one. And he did. His name is St. Barnabas. Number 13. He also poured over the lives of saints. He had collected a, full, a box full of these, and as soon as he would return home from school, 
not even wanting to eat, he would, he would head straight for the box in his room, take out a saint's life and begin reading. Who was that? Do, do people remember? Saint? No. Paisios. Saint Paisios, the newly canonised saint. Remember when his brother got upset because he was not doing his homework and then he took away the lives and then Saint Paisios found other ways of getting lives? Here's another one. He, uh, he enriched his explanations with many quotations from the scriptures, the fathers and the lives of the saints. Who's that? Sounds a bit like me. Am I a saint? Because that's what I do. But that's not. That was from a saint's book. That when he would preach or write, he would use scripture, the holy fathers, and examples from the lives of the saints. So then why am I saying that's what I do? Because that's what I do. That's what I was inspired to do from, from the beginning, even before I became a priest. When I would do talks, did a lot of talks as a layperson, I always would do that mixture, teachings of the Holy Fathers, scripture, and examples of the lives of the saints. Father Seraphim Rose, what did he do? Teachings of the Holy Fathers, examples of the lives of saints, and quotes from the Holy Bible. This is what those who preach or those who write, they need to do that. But today we see something, something's wrong. We see writings, as some of you go on the internet and just read, sometimes garbage. Oh, but it's a priest that said it. Archimand right, whatever. He wrote this article. Yes. Did the article have examples from Lives of Saints? Oh, no. Did they have examples of the Holy Fathers? No. Sometimes, a little bit. Look for that, the three, to know something safe. Examples from the Lives of Saints and the teachings of the Holy Fathers, like St. Basil the Great, all these great fathers, St. Nectarius, St. Justin, St. John's the Holy Father, and quotes from Scripture. That's how you know something's safe. So when I first came to the church, my spiritual father said, why don't you go to some talks, there was a group, I won't say who, uh, a church group, and they were doing uh, official from the church. And they used to have, every Saturday, they used to have these um, get-togethers. And I went there, and I would hear the talk in English. Was it in Greek? I don't even remember. Such a nightmare, I can't remember. And they were talking, talking, and go, so sorry, I haven't heard today the word even Christ being said. I haven't heard even a scripture reference. And I certainly haven't heard examples of the lives of the same. What is that? But what I did is I condemned myself. I go, oh, maybe it's me. All I know is that when I was there, I was suffering. Similar to someone who's strapped in an electric chair. It was, it was torture. At the end, they gave watermelon. So I quickly had the watermelon, got in the car, and got out of there, 
Went home, started reading my books, The Lives of Saints, etc. But I still condemned myself. I said, that must be me. Maybe I got these people, I don't know. And they started singing these songs that to me sounded Protestant. Let's go to church and wear the best and all that type of thing. We are the salt of the earth. I said, well, it sounds Protestant. But I still condemned myself. I went to the spiritual father. I said to Mike, I'm sorry, I can't go. It's my fault, but I just can't go. He goes, no, it's good, good. You should go. So I went again. Came back again. I said to him, I just find this very difficult. It's my fault. I did, I believe. I said, it's my fault. I just, can't, I just can't listen to that. And he goes, no, no, it's good, it's good. So he went, I went again. I went back and go, I can't do it. He goes, well, don't go anymore. <laughs> Actually reacted like that. Later on, I found out that I wasn't wrong. That group, their basis was based on a lot of the brotherhoods in Greece. And these brotherhoods in Greece, their model was Protestants. They made books like Ikalimama, that means the good mother, the obedient son. Things like that. And I found out later on, these were translations from Protestant books. No lies of saints. No holy fathers. Because Greece, when, when we got rid of the Turks, was inundated. They, these, they all came Protestant missionaries into Greece and really influenced Greece in a Protestant way. That's why I didn't like it. So you have that as your indicator. Scripture, Holy Father's teaching, and the lives of saints, just like Father Sarah from Rose did. Now, you might say, oh, does that mean you're a saint? No, I did not base that on Father Sarah from Rose. I based it on how I felt. That's what I felt was the best thing. I felt I'm going to mention the lives of saints because they are so powerful to me. So if they're powerful to me, I want to mention it to the people. Number 15, he tried to put into practice everything that he read in the lives of the saints. That was St. Paisius. Number 16, he had a great desire to hear his brother reading the Holy Scriptures or the lives of the saints. Their great accomplishments were engraved deeply on his young memory. Imagine if we bring up our children on the Holy Scriptures and the lives of saints. In it. I wasn't. So when I have to think spiritual, I've got to force myself. Because in my mind, is Gilligan's Island, Hogan's Heroes, Bugs Bunny, other cartoons, Bewitched, all these stupid things that I was brought up with. That's what's in my mind. And I say to myself, if, if that's happening to me, imagine the kids, because I don't think I even had a TV when I was young, and plus my parents had a shop, which was good, and we used to go down to the shop where there's no TV. So I wasn't, I was influenced, but not as bad as now, where children are given the internet and this from young, and their brains are being saturated and with distractions and images. Like I'm thinking of something and or someone says a word and straight away that brings me to that television show or that television show or that song 
or that Beatles song, or that Elvis Presley song, or that, because that's how I was brought up. Imagine if you bring up your children from young in the atmosphere of the lives of saints and the scripture. And that's what the spiritual children of Elder Frem in America, a lot of them over there, if you see the, some of the videos of the funeral and you see the kids, I thought I was looking at angels. I said, well, where's our, where are our angels? And, I, and because a lot of them are homeschooled and they're close to the monastery, they even move close to the monastery. And they read the lives of saints to their children. They do prayers together. And those children are angelic. Number 17. From his childhood, familiarity with the lives of saints had ignited in his heart a desire for the monastic life. I've said before, the lives of saints are so powerful that sometimes it goes to the highest level it can go. The effect of the lives of saints is to become a monastic. And the truth of the matter is, monasticism is the highest form of spiritual life. There was Martha and Mary. Martha, Martha, they were anxious because she was doing all serving. Not that it's bad, but she started to say, Lord, tell my sister to serve with me. Now, Christ said, no, you can't stop her. If she wants to sit at my feet and listen to my teaching, she wants to do full spiritual life. While the married people can't do it to that extent because the wife worries about the husband and the husband worries about making the wife happy. Not that it's a bad life, but as Christ said, Mary has chosen the better part. In other words, what Martha was doing wasn't bad that she was serving and distracted a bit and that, because people do that, but Mary chose the better part. And the lives of saints have that effect on people so powerful that they bring people to monasticism. Not everyone. From her earliest years, she learned the lives of the saints by heart so that she was able to follow the example of their evangelical conduct in every circumstance of her life. That was Saint Elizabeth, uh, an ancient saint. And that's good because a lot of times I remember things from the life but I can't remember who it was. That doesn't matter anyway. The, to me, is if I have a situation, I go, oh, what did that saint do? That saint did this. That saint did that, that, that. And it's part of us so that we know how to apply the commandments in our life. Turn your other cheek, says the Bible. Turn your other cheek. How do you interpret that? What does that mean? Does it mean that when a nation is coming to attack your country to rape your women and to destroy your churches. You're going to sit at the border and, and everyone's going to have their cheek so they can be slapped by the enemy. No. Turn your cheek means it's for personal things. Personal, not for matters of the faith. That's all explained in the lives of saints. And yet people, because they don't read the lives of saints, have no idea how to, how to understand the Holy Scriptures. In his childhood, he read the lives of saints enthusiastically. He became so filled with their brilliant deeds that he wanted to imitate them so that he could find salvation. St. Macarius the Merce Dreamer. Number 20, 
As a youth, he was fascinated by the lives of the saints. Reading about these holy persons, he was filled with the desire to become a monk and to devote his whole life to Christ and his church, St. Porfirios. He was fascinated. The other word, enthusiastically read. Loved, delighted. All these to describe how they feel when they read the lives of saints. In conversation, St. John, whose relics we have today, loved to bring up many examples from the lives of saints in a vivid way. And I explained that last time. Some of the words for vivid. Powerful, lively, clear, energetic, expressive, and memorable. St. John continually made references to the lives of saints. He would give out little pamphlets of the lives of saints. He, as I said, he petitioned the synod of the Russian church abroad to add to the orthodox liturgical calendar Western saints that had been forgotten. In other words, St. John had swum every day in the lives of saints. What do we swim in? Do we swim in the lives of saints? Beautiful, fresh, clear water. Or do we swim in sewage? Is that meant to offend you? I'm not trying to offend. I'm talking about myself too. So I watch something on YouTube say something that I'm, I'm looking at. I could be reading something, doing something, but instead I choose to look at that, something there. Is it spiritual? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it might be just some news. Does that mean we shouldn't look at those things? Well, some saints didn't touch the news at all, and other saints did. St. Nectarius used to read newspapers. St. Porphyrius even got a television at one stage and was watching the news and things like that, and later on, because it was scandalising people, he got rid of it, while other saints had nothing to do with it. I'm not telling you that you don't do it at all. All I'm telling you is that from the news goes something else and something else, and by that time we're looking at stupidities on YouTube of silly things, which is sewage. They're not helping us. That's what I'm saying. Number 22, the lives of the saints teach us how to fulfil the commandments of the Lord. In these lives, examples are to be found which lead one to a holy life. Saint Anthony Voronezh, I think you say it. So he said that by reading the lives of saints, we learn how to fulfil the commandments. Number 23, an orthodox spiritual life is impossible without the reading of the lives of saints. Who said that? Who remembers? An orthodox spiritual life is impossible, not maybe a little bit, impossible, without reading the lives of saints. Who is it? Do you remember? I mentioned it in the talk when Father was here. Saint Justin Popovich. And what, what was one of his biggest jobs that he did, a part of all his dogmatic books? Producing a 12-volume set in modern Serbian for the Serbian people. Saint Demetrius of Rostov, Russian, what did he do? Produced 
volumes of the lives of saints. And what did Saint Nicodemus do, the Athenite? He produced volumes of the lives of saints. This is a new one I found for you. Saint Joseph of Optina. Saint Joseph of Optina was born in 1837. His parents, Ephthymius and Maria, were simple but pious people. I love the way when I I actually, in my brain, I remember. St. Justin's parents were Spirilo and Anastasia. Comes to mind, and I commemorate them. They're probably already saved. So what happens when I commemorate them is that I get help from them. If they haven't been saved yet, then they are helped. But having a son like St. Justin... They're probably already saved. But they haven't been canonised. I love when the lives of saints mention the name of parents because the people who write the lives of saints want you to know that the saints are people born of parents who lived in families and who became saints. They're not some type of something else, some mythical thing. So his parents were Ephthemius and Maria. They were simple but pious. They were generous to the poor and often lent money to those in need, even when there seemed little chance that it would be repaid. Ephthymios, the father, also loved to receive monks who came to his door collecting alms for their monasteries. Yes, it's a practice. Even great saints went around to collect money for their monasteries. Why should you give money to the monasteries? What's the purpose? Simple. Without the monasteries, we're toast. We're finished. We're nothing. The world will be destroyed. They'll be worse than what it is now. The monasteries are keeping us safe and are helping us. And that's why it's important and pious Orthodox Christians know to support the monasteries so that they can continue to do commemorations, prayers every day, especially those monasteries that serve liturgy every day. But but I read in the Egyptian saints that they, someone gave them gold pieces and they threw it in the river. So therefore... What happens if someone gives me some gold pieces, I'm going to go to the river near my place, Cook's River, and I'm going to throw the gold into the river. Do you think I'm going to do that? No, I'm going to go and sell it and use it for our needs. Well, why did they do it? Because they weren't living in a monastery. They were living in the desert. They left themselves completely to, to God. They didn't even have protection if pirates came and this and they didn't care. And then you say, but that's how everyone should be. Well, if that's the case, then why do we have monasteries, which still exist today, which are built like castles? They even have on top of the door a hole on top. What was that for? To drop down boiling hot oil on those who were trying to get into the monasteries to uh, kill the, the monks and to desecrate the holies. So we're getting confused. Yes, some left themselves... To God's providence, they became saints, and there's others who didn't do that. They protected themselves, tried to protect themselves, protect the holy things like that. So you're getting confused a lot of times. That's why you've got to read 
an assortment of life and say, if you say just read the life of the desert fathers, you're going to become lopsided on your thinking and go, oh, that's how we should be. We should not worry about food. We should not worry about water. We should not worry about protection. Leave the doors open. Let the pedophiles come in and molest your children. No, God will protect. Don't buy alarm. That's a lack of faith. We have an alarm. (gasps) (laughs) That means you lack faith. No, God wants us to do what's normal and he'll do the rest. A woman said, someone's mother here, said, when I used to go to work in the night time at Central Station there and I used to go underneath the, the bridge there in the dark in the middle of the night and I did my cross and I trusted in God and I went through. When she could have done it in a safe way but she didn't want to do it the safe way. She wanted to do it that way because God will protect her. Now, there's another situation when a person has to go through there because there's no other means. Then, yes, God will protect but not when you can do the human way. Ephthymius, the father of Saint Joseph of Optina, he would always give each one five rubles for the needs of their monastery. Ephthymius and Maria had six children and they often read to them spiritual books, especially the lives of the saints. 25, Saint John of Alamo, 1958 he died. He is the one who wrote the book Christ is in Our Midst, Letters from a Russian Monk, which I love that book. We have it. I always tell people to buy it. There is, there is letters. And um, I always commemorated him. But recently, he just, in 2018, he was canonised a saint by the Russian church. Born in 1873, in his own memoirs, St John said that he was not a very good student and that his sister learned how to read before him. But in the end, he too learned how to read. He soon developed a liking to reading and acquired Lives of Saints published as small booklets. So he started to like reading. And what did, his, what did he emphasise when he started to learn to read? Straight to the Lives of Saints. So is that food ready now? Okay. Um just one more, in 26, in a talk on the place of the lives of saints in the spiritual life, 2002, Father Damascene, who's now the abbot of St. Herman of Alaska Platina Monastery, where Father Seraphim's relics are, Father Seraphim established that monastery, uh, he said the following, I spoke recently to an Orthodox priest who had converted to Orthodoxy from Protestantism. He told me that when he was received into the church, the serving priest told him, you will never be truly orthodox without reading the lives of saints. That's what the priest told him before he received him to the orthodox church, this ex-Protestant. Later, when this ex-Protestant became a priest himself, he found that the most pious people in the parishes are those who read the lives of the saints. And that those who make the most progress in the spiritual life are those who read the lives of the saints. I can always tell when I speak to someone, those who read the lives of saints and those who don't. The way is that 
When you speak to someone who doesn't read the lives of saints, it's like you're talking to them in a foreign language. They do not, and you say, oh yeah, and saints so and so. They don't comprehend. They have no interest. But the ones that read the lives of saints, they're spiritual people. Assortment, not just one type. And when we come back, we will do Father Philothos Zervakos, a new one that someone found for me, and we put this in. Excellent. Uh, what does he say about the lives of saints? And then we go on to the theme of today's talk, which is temptations when reading the lives of saints. So let us eat the sandwiches, and after that, later on at the end, as a reward, if you make it, if you can stay all these hours, as a reward, you get a meal. A big meal. Okay. And the last one in our list 27, which is also new, is Father Philothos Zervakos, which he was born in 1884 and passed away in 1980. And this comes from a, a book, Autobiography, Homilies and Miracles. He writes, I was born of pious and God-fearing parents, Panayotis and Catherine Zervakos, in May of the year 1884. I loved the church from the days of my childhood and I loved to chant and read holy books. This is now, it talks about when he was a, a teenager. I saw some small pamphlets on the lives of saints one day as I was browsing around in a store in my village. I bought a few of them and went to my parents' home, closed myself in my room and began to study them. I read the lives of St. Anthony, it's an ascetic, uh, St. John Damascene, the confessor of the faith, St. Barbara, the martyr, and of other saints. See, I love that because... See, an assortment. Let's not do the exceptions of some of the saints that were particularly on one type of, life, uh, one type of uh, group. For us, it's safe to be reading an assortment of the lives of the saints. I met a person that I, I think I've mentioned this before, when I went and did some talks in Melbourne as a layperson, and I met him, I stayed at his place, and I noticed that he was preoccupied with ascetical things, prayer rules, like, like really long ones, and fasting. And I said to him, you know, you shouldn't do that. Anyway, when I left, as I mentioned to you before, he went around Melbourne saying that I was a heretic, that I was against the Holy Fathers. Approximately 30 years later, he rang me up. I still had contact with him, but he, he was, you know, you could see the mind, the mind. Uh, he kept on reading ascetical fathers. And he rang me up 30 years later and he said, forgive me, you were right. I fell into deception and I haven't recovered. Uh, every moment I read their lives, I felt a ray of divine light that filled my heart 
with an inexpressible sweetness, joy and delight and, as a result, I acquired a great love and desire for God and heavenly things was ignited within me. This is how powerful the lives of saints are. My mind was thinking about heavenly things, whether I was eating, walking or speaking with someone. My soul and my heart were somehow attached to God and the heavenly things. When I read about the deaths of the holy martyrs, it was like I was right in front of them, witnessing their martyrdom. And then my soul was brought to compunction. Compunction means like a contrite and humble heart, like humility and and uh, feelings of uh, repentance and things. And whenever I read the lives of the Holy Fathers, I imagined the desert and felt a certain sweetness. Little by little, I came to desire the monastic life. And for another book from Precious Vessels of the Holy Spirit, from the publishers Protecting Vale Press, I'll read what they wrote. Throughout the day, his mind clung to the memory of God and of heaven, and through the lives of saints that he read, he experienced the sufferings of the martyrs and the sweet silence of the desert monastics. This led him to desire the monastic life. That's we already read that before, the new section. Having revealed his desire to his mother, the same night he was visited by demons in the form of grotesque, in other words, ugly monsters, which threatened to kill him if he didn't give up his desire for the monastic life. Gripped with fear, Constantino, because that was Elder Philotheos' name before, called upon the Theotokos to come to his aid. I'm going to stress this. Some of you are superstitious a little bit. Don't have the thought that if you expose your children to the lives of saints, they can become monastics. As I said before, you wish. Remember, there are many souls in Hades that have not been saved yet. And those souls, orthodox souls, say, I wish I had a child that became a monastic or a priest so they can pray for us and get us out of here. Now, does that mean that only those which have got monastic children or, or, or sons that are priests will be saved. No. In general, those children, priests and monastics, because they're into the spiritual life, they know the importance of commemorations, they will do that. There are also lay people who know the importance of that. But not much. They don't understand. Like people, for example send requests for 40-day commemorations for their father or their mother. Some of them don't even know the... There's no value, but they don't understand that, you know, it's customary that people give donations when they ask for commemorations, depending on your heart, what you feel, your, your financial level. Some people give $20. You might say, oh, that doesn't matter. That's like the widow in the Bible if they put the one, the one little thing that she put in the coin there. Yeah, but she was poor. If you're poor 
That's different. Not a lot of people <laughs> have got money and they don't understand the importance. But some of you say, freely you have received, freely give. Isn't that what Christ says? Freely that the priests and the monastics should not charge. The priests and monastics do not charge. But you just said now that they should give commemorations. I'm not charging them. If they give $20, we commemorate them. If they give nothing, we commemorate them. Some people give 100 some people give 300 some 500 some 1000 I've even received 5000 10000 People give whatever they want. We, we do that. But it's important how the person asks for the commemoration and what sacrifice they're doing. What's their spirit? What do they value? Monasteries, priests do not charge. But you say, but when we had my son baptised, the priest charged $100 for the baptism. It's not charging for the baptism. It's charging for the administration part of it. Because the church has got administration. It's got expenses, secretaries, computers, this, that. That's that. But you're not charging for the mystery. Freely you have received, freely give. But the saints didn't take money. Of course they did. I remember I went to Jerusalem. I went to St. Sava's Monastery in the desert. And the abbot there, Father Seraphim, who's now passed away, I think he lived over 100 years old, very, very spiritual person. So I wrote him out all these names. Just list and list of dead people's names. And living, but a lot of dead. And I gave him that. And I got out my traveller's checks. And I gave him... 50, I think, American. This is a very spiritual person. And he says to me in Greek, very little for so many names. I was a bit shocked. Very little for so many names. Remember that at the time I was a teacher and I was doing tutoring, so I was getting a lot of money. I was getting more from tutoring than I was getting from school. And I had a wad of traveller's checks. And he said to me, very little. I must admit, I got a bit scandalised, I gave some more. A little bit bothered me. But later on I realised, he's got this ancient, gigantic monastery out in the desert. and monks, and they do services there. The services that they do were maybe 10, 12 hours a day. They do the full services, liturgy, every day, full vespers, full matins, everything. And they don't make money. They don't, they don't do little censors and icon paint. They don't do any of that. They dedicated all fully to, the, to prayer and they're praying for the world. And yet, to upkeep that place cost a lot of money. When 
When my father died, I just came to the church and still I kicked myself for how stupid I was. When my father died, I went to the monastery up at Kentland and I said, oh, my father died, can I have 40-day liturgies? They go, okay. And they said, um, $40. And that one, $40 because they, they take out one prosforo. And the prosforo costs money, that's $1. So $1 per day is $40. And I was shocked. And I said, freely you have received, freely give, all these logics, demonic things are coming in my head. I couldn't even understand. So my father wasn't worth $40. How are these monasteries going to survive? I didn't even think to myself. Now I understand. Especially when you depend on, on donations. Yes, freely you have given, freely we, the priests, they have received the grace of God freely and they give the grace of God freely. When you come up for a blessing and the priest blesses you, that's for free. In the liturgy, it's for free. But if you give a donation, you're giving it for the upkeep of the church, for the monastery, for the monks, for the nuns, etc., etc. That's why I don't have for that. I just say, you give whatever you want. Unfortunately, and I say this because I went through it too, people do not understand the value of commemorations for the living and especially for those that have departed. And that's why those souls are saying, I wish I had a priest in my family or a monastic so they can pray for me so I can get out of here. There are lay people, few, that do understand the value and they, they give donations, they, they ask for commemorations, etc. For my mother, it was different. For my mother, I gave to a, a lot of monasteries or wherever, wherever, whoever was doing everyday liturgies. St. John's Church in San Francisco, they serve every day, Mount Athos, Jordanville, some other, some other monasteries, Greek, and now with Father Frem's monasteries, a lot of them they serve everyday liturgy as well. Oh, but Father Frem's monasteries have got gold. Gold chandeliers and this and that. What did Christ say when the woman came with a very expensive perfume and put it on, poured it on his head. And what the uh, Judas say, and uh, even some of the others say, that could have been sold and given to the poor. And Christ's answer was, you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. It is an orthodox pious tradition to make things beautiful, magnificent, Expensive for God. Now those people that complain and say, oh, the churches have got marble everywhere and granite and gold, chandeliers and gold chalices and all that. And I would say, can I come to your house to see your plasma television and your beautiful plush lounge suite and your nice carpet and things like that? 
oh, but, the, uh, uh, but, 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 but why are you allowed to do that and then you complain if the church and monasteries build their places? Suddenly, when Constantino got scared when the demons appeared, suddenly her icon descended from the heavens and the demons were driven away. When the icon began to ascend back to the heavens, the demons returned angrier than before. This happened three times. The third time, Constantinos clung to the icon until he came to himself and stayed awake, trembling until the morning. It's true, it's happened even to, lay, even to ordinary people there that when they come towards the church to repent, God can permit, with God's permission, demonic attacks. Remember the story I said in the monastery of Dinisio when someone went there and he was in a room of around five, six beds but there was no one there and he was going to sleep and suddenly he felt the bed shake, the sheets flying up in the air and he ran to the, to the abbot who was Elder Haralambos, spiritual child of Elder Joseph who laughed and says, just the demons, because they had you and now they don't want to lose you. And that's for all of us. All of us who, when we're not in the church, of course the demons have us. doesn't mean we're possessed. They've got influence. But God permits these things. Why? So that we can see that what we're heading towards is valuable and that demons exist and they hate him meaning Christ and they hate his church and they hate his saints and they hate the monasteries and they hate priests when communism came to Russia what's the first thing they hit they started hitting the monastics the priests bombing churches destroying monasteries who who made them do that Lenin did Lenin do that did Stalin do that I would say who did that was the demons that were behind these people. Whether they know it or not, it was the demons that influenced Lenin's and Stalin's and all these people to do what they did to the church. From that time on, because little feared being outside after dark and the initial calling he felt for the monastic life waned. In other words, it decreased. He started losing that desire to become a monastic. All of the things of the world tempted him. God did not abandon him and protected him despite his change of heart. He soon took a teaching position in the nearby village. In addition to his work, he spent time playing the violin, mandolin and guitar and would recite poetry in the marketplace, worldly poetry, at the request of the villagers who gave him the nickname Nightingale as his voice was so beautiful. So this person who went from this monastic zeal was attacked by the demons, he lost that zeal and started doing a lot of worldly things. Not that they're bad, one can say, but uh, he lost his zeal because of the demons, he got scared. One day at a friend's house, he noticed a beautiful bound book entitled Diamonds of Paradise, which was a collection of 
the lives of saints and other spiritually edifying writings, beneficial writings. Constantino, his heart aflame once again with love for God, took the book and went straight home to read it. Touched once more by grace, he decided to give up the things of the world, his music, his friends, worldly people, etc., and all other things that tied him to the earth. The thought of his death and what would happen to his soul at the final judgment especially moved him. That's a sign, you see. When you start thinking about judgment, the next life, changing your life, etc. So I wanted to say there with that one that the lives of the saints brought him back to start leading a spiritual life. In this case, he became a monastic, but the same thing applies for people in the world. It can happen to you, maybe it's happened to you. The three temptations when reading the lives of saints. I went through it in the other talk, but I'm going to summarise it, and then I'm going to emphasise the first one. The first one is unbelief or doubt. When reading the lives of saints, we can be tempted by unbelief or doubt regarding the truthfulness of what you read in their lives. So that's one temptation. Unbelief, like totally disbelieve it, or you doubt. Is that true? Is that, did that really happen? Did you really walk on water? What's going on there? Number two, discouragement and hopelessness. When reading the lives of saints, we can feel that their great achievements are beyond us. Their asceticism, their remarkable faith, their endurance during their sufferings and sicknesses, martyrdom, persecution, slander, all these things you say, I, I, I can't do that. I don't know how I would do that. That's called discouragement and hopelessness. That's another temptation. I want to do that, God willing, towards the end of the year. Number three, fantasy and deception. When reading the lives of saints, we can try to imitate their ascetical deeds, their great spiritual heights, and even their miracles and wonders without taking into consideration our own spiritual level, the conditions of our own life, that we're not in monasteries, a lot of us, the circumstances that we live in, in other words, we can strive and desire to reach spiritual levels that are truly beyond us. The basis of this temptation is pride, vainglory, ignorance, disobedience, self-trust and basic stupidity. That's the third temptation. All of them we need to go into detail. So, in this talk and maybe the next talk, God willing, I'm going to do unbelief or doubt. The second one, discouragement hopelessness, will be in the talk after that. That might be one to two talks. The next talk after that will be fantasy and deception, like the guy in Melbourne who fantasised that he was an ascetic. So after he would watch TV, then he used to go and do all these big prostrations, fasting with no oils, as if he was a, an ascetic. The ascetics didn't have TV. That's why they reached high levels. So let's look at the summary of uh, Talk 79, when I touched on this, but I'm going to go into more detail. And it says, We read in the lives of saints that the saints of God accomplished great feats, achievements. The martyrs, ascetics, monastics, miracle workers, 
fools for Christ, apostles, confessors of the faith, royals. There was all these categories of saints. And we read in there really marvellous things. However, while reading these remarkable and miraculous lives, we can experience underlying doubts and even unbelief regarding the truthfulness of these lives. Now, that's happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to you. Everyone goes through it. These thoughts can be hidden, not noticeable, subtle. In other words, they're not fully clear. Other times they can be clear, strong and overwhelming. These thoughts can come from our own disbelief or they can be demonic. So you can't say every thought of unbelief is from the devil. Sometimes it's from ourselves as well. Nevertheless, whatever it's from, we need solutions. We need to know what do we do. What should Orthodox Christians do when confronted with such thoughts? I'll tell you one experience that I've had. So you read in the lives of saints and suddenly you get this blasphemous thought that that's not true or something like that. You can do two things. You can either dwell on it and say, and talk with that thought. Oh, no, but that's true. And you have a dialogue. Don't do that. That's not for us to do. Christ had the dialogue with the demons. The devil was talking to him and he answered back, quoting scripture. But that's not for us. So what do we do? What do you think, Father? What should we do? You don't create the airport. Sorry? You don't create the airport for them to land. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Ignore it. Completely ignore it. Move on. Just keep on reading. And I've noticed within a few seconds, you even forget you had the thought. Just keep on it. Don't enter into dialogue. That's what the demons want a lot of times. They want to enter that, and they got experience. We don't. What experience do they have? Uh, seven, eight thousand years of experience of tempting man, tempting people. What experience do we have? Hardly anything. So, ignore it. But there's more to that. That's one advice. See the answer. We should familiarise ourselves more thoroughly with the lives of the saints who lived close to our time. By doing this, we can see what is possible in our own times through the power of Christ and this will lead us to believe in what occurred through that same power many, many years ago, centuries ago, thousands of years ago. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, when we read lives of saints who lived close to our time, like St. John, who just passed away in 1966. What's even more powerful is that we've got his relics there. What's even more powerful is miracles. And we have so many, I'm going to list them soon, of people that have lived close to our time and in our times. 
and still live in our times. We don't even know. Elder Ephraim. It's not customary to call someone a saint while they're alive. Some did. Now that he's gone, we will see what's going to happen with miracles at his grave, people's prayers being answered. But just on itself, what are the fruits? 19, I think, monasteries in Northern America. It's Canada and America. And he also revitalised four monasteries on Mount Athos. Philothel, Caracalo, Xeropotamo, I think, and Constantimito, something like that. But apart from that, he also had monasteries that he used to guide in the world. I think Mother Macrina of Volos should be canonised, which I had the blessing to meet three days before she died. And apart from his own 19 monasteries, he also was a guide in, uh, or his monks were guiding those of other monasteries, like a Serbian monastery, St. Basil of Ajovsky, women's monastery, I think they're in Arizona, I think, I can't remember. Anyway, he's guiding them, and that's the fruits. You cannot establish that many monasteries if you're not a saint. America, before he came, was becoming similar to the Western Church when they were still part of the Orthodox Church. The Western Church, when they were with us, towards, you know, even they started, they changed the creed, they become slack, they were changing things. For centuries before the final schism in 1054, they had gone off. And forgive me, but the Greeks had gone off in America. It, they were worldly as, worldly as. And now you see, they say in the airport near the monastery in Arizona, whatever airport's there, the airport's full of black. Nuns, monks, priests... And these people are not just from America. There are people visiting him from Crete, from Greece. They were visiting him. You can't do that unless you're a saint. And you'll see now they're going to produce books about him. And we'll have a better chance to see, uh, to read about things that were avoided while he was still alive, which is they do that. Saint Nicodemus also gave advice of how to deal with his unbelief and doubt. And I mentioned in talk 80, Saint Nicodemus the Athenite, the Aurite, that means Aurite in Greek, Athenite, published a book titled The New Martyrology, in other words, New Martyrs. This was a collection of the lives of 87 new martyrs of, of the Orthodox Church who suffered from 1330 until 1796. St. Nicodemus died in 1809, so that's probably up to where he did that book. But I was wondering, why did he start from 1330? 
and that confused me. So I had to go and do a bit of research, and I'll share it quickly. Some of you don't like history. Some of you do. Muhammad was born in 571 and died in 632. Now, Arab-Muslim conquest. See, there's two different things. There's Turkish Muslims, and then there was the Arabs in the earlier century. So, Arab-Muslim conquest began in 622, 10 years before he died. He started this holy war, and with the sword they went and converted. Like Constantinople, the Greeks. The Greeks went with the sword and converted Russia and Serbia and Bulgaria. Is that what we did? No. No sword. I was being sarcastic. They were converted from the grace of God. Them, they converted people to their religion through the sword. Jerusalem fell in 636. Remember, Jerusalem was part of the Byzantine Empire. Antioch fell in 637, a year later. Alexandria fell in, finally fell in 641. Three main Orthodox patriarchs. The Ottoman Empire, which is the Turks now, was founded in 1299. They came from Central Asia and Western China. But they were Muslims, they were up there. So in other words, they would have attacked areas when they started coming down in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Asia Minor is also, we also call it Anatolia. It's got two names. Present-day Turkey, the Asian side. Remember, Turkey is part of two continents. Asia, then we've got the Bosphorus, which is the, the bridge there, Constantinople, and then it's got the European side. There's only one other country which, has, which is, goes across two continents. Who knows what that country is? Russia. Russia is partly in Asia and partly in Europe. They're the only two countries. So 1330s, probably around about when he started, is because that's when they started killing people and, and there was a lot of martyrs. The Turks first crossed into Europe in 1354. Europe. But they already were doing their attacks in Asia, in the Turkish, around Constantinople and all those areas. They defeated the Bulgarians in 1371, the Serbs in 1389, and Constantinople fell in 1453. Athens fell in 14. 58, Peloponnesus, the Peloponnese fell in 1460, two years later, southern Greece. Cyprus was holding on because there was the Venetians there, the Catholics, but then at the end the Turks conquered that, Cyprus, in 1571 and Crete in 1670. Not, not Arab Muslims, Turkish that's what we have in our lives as saints. We have those who died under the Arabs. They're also called new martyrs. And we've got the ones that died under the Turks. St. Nicodemus wrote this book of 87 martyrs from 1330 to 1796. There was, of course, 
new miners after that, but that's as far as his book went. The purpose of this book was to support Orthodox Christians who were under the oppression of the Ottomans, the Turks. Thanks to this book, many apostates were converted and joined the glorious ranks of the martyrs. Apostates means Orthodox who fell away from the church to have rights, less taxes, to wear nicer clothes. Greeks weren't allowed, for example, to wear bright clothes. They weren't allowed to ride horses. Their churches had to be built low. Well, everything Turkish was nice, less taxes. And a lot of the Orthodox in Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, they fell to this temptation and became apostates. Just like today, there are a lot of apostates, people that have left the Orthodox Church who are baptised, but they've apostatized. This book also inspired many Orthodox Christians not to deny their Orthodox faith. So there were those who didn't deny the faith, and these books were helping, these lives of saints were helping them to stay Orthodox. Don't deny your faith, either for benefit or from fear of martyrdom or giving way and denying Christ under torture. Today, I think we need books on saints that lived in the world. Just like St. Nicodemus, he was writing all these lives because of the time they were living in. What was the time? When Greeks, etc., were becoming Muslim. So he, he flooded Greece with these books, these lives. Today, I think, this is my own opinion, we need books on saints that lived in the world, especially in recent times, where there's dealing with television, internet, social media, children's rights, supposed rights, loss of parental rights, contraceptions, things that didn't exist before, easy access to abortion, Secularism, like the worldliness through even the church becoming worldly. Hostility towards religion today. And something else, dealing with children that are being sent to heterodox schools. It's children, orthodox children that go into Protestant and Catholic schools. That has to be dealt with. We need lives on that. Lives of parents who refuse to do that. And I'm going to make a statement. I don't want to go on it too much. Heterodox schools, children, orthodox children that go to heterodox schools is worse than the atheism of the communists and the Turkish oppression. Now you say, why? How can that be? I'll tell you. You know, some, a lot of you know what happened in Russia. How they blew up churches, converted churches into toilets, bathhouses, converted churches into cinemas, or just blew them up and made parks. They got the relics of saints and put them into museums and mocked them and put them next to them a stuffed bird and say, this is the Orthodox, it's just a stuffed body. 
even though this communist scientists couldn't understand how those relics were incorrupt. But they didn't, they didn't say anything. The, what the church went through, Orthodox parents were, were, couldn't even baptise their kids a lot of times because they couldn't find churches or baptise them secretly. Parents were made to send their children to school and one of the subjects was atheism. Now, you might say, are you crazy? How can you put the atheism taught to kids and say that that's better than the heresy taught to orthodox children in heterodox schools? I'll tell you the answer, simple. Look at Russia. What's the result of 80 years of atheism? Look at the churches, the Golkopolas everywhere, the number of monasteries, the, the litanies of people. You see them when the curse grid icon came from America and went over there. The streets had hundreds of thousands of people marching. The president of Russia is a baptised Orthodox Christian, a believer, who has given properties back to the church and given the church a lot of power. Who would have thought after 80 years of atheism, where kids were subjected to atheism in the schools every day of their life? Now let's look at Western Ukraine. What happened in Western Ukraine? What happened? Unions. What happened? Catholic schools. And what happened? The Orthodox Christians that were living in the Western side, which is closer to the, the Catholics on that side, what happened to them? They became unions. What else has happened? This whole rift between Russia and Ukraine. The majority of the Ukrainians are with Moscow. They're orthodox. And there are this group over there, these unions, who are doing their, whatever they can to break away Ukraine to have no contact with Russia. And who are those creatures? They are Catholics. So what happened with Roman Catholic propaganda? Let's compare it to atheistic propaganda and Roman Catholic propaganda, which, by the way, it happened also in Lebanon, where areas in Lebanon, where the Roman Catholics came, opened up schools... And the Orthodox ran with their children, with their tongues hanging out in saliva and salivating and saying, please take our children to educate them. And the Roman Catholic said, yes, we'll do that. And what happened to them? Uniates. They're uniates. And what's a uniate? In other words, they look like us, they dress like us, they do liturgies like us, they've got icons like us, exactly the same, except when we say for for example, the Russian church, 
for our patriarch Kirill, a metropolitan Ilarian, a Bishop George, as we said today, or the Serbian church, who do you can remember, just the bishop or the patriarch as well? It depends, but usually bishop. Yeah, the bishop and, or, or the patriarch. The patriarch of Serbia, the bishop, the local bishop, etc. But Uniates, they say, for our Holy Father Francis, Pope of Rome. That's the difference. Sometimes you can't tell them apart, except for one thing. They look disgusting. They do not look appearance-wise orthodox. You can even have the worst priest in the orthodox church and still there's something on him. It's called priesthood. But with them, they don't have it. That's the result. And one more example, which I said last time, but some of you are new today. The Greeks had a choice. They knew that they couldn't hold on anymore to hold Constantinople and they were asking the Pope, please come and help us. And the Pope says, of course we'll help you. Of course we'll help you. But you're going to be under me. And you're going to have the creed the way we have the creed. And you're going to believe what we believe. And some Greeks said, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, we will. But the majority said no. They said no, no. And that's where we have that expression. The Greeks said, at the most crucial time, they asked themselves, we either get help from them, but lose our orthodoxy, or we're going to let the Muslims take over. And then comes that beautiful expression, better to be under the turban of the Muslims than the tiara of the Pope. I mean, it's what that thing that he wears. Why is that? Because... Muslims do not interfere in our dogmas. They don't care if we believe in the mother of God. They don't care if we believe in that. They don't touch any of that. Now and then, they'll say become Muslim. It's distinct. They don't say, like the Catholics do, if you don't say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, we'll kill you. Muslims don't care about that. They just say, deny your orthodoxy and become... They don't interfere in any dogma. After 400 years of being under them in some parts of Greece and the rest, Serbia, northern Greece, etc., 500 years, the orthodox were under the Turks. And what happened? Orthodox Bulgaria... Orthodox Serbia, Orthodox Greece, nothing happened. We didn't become Muslim. But, as our vice principal used to say at my, when I was used to go to school, when I was a student, believe you me. That's what he used to say all the time. Believe you me. You break a rule, I'll come down on you like a ton of bricks. And the kids used to count how many times he used to say it. 
sometimes 30 times, etc. So believe you me, if we were taken over, conquered by the Roman Catholics, there would be no Orthodox Serbia, Orthodox Bulgaria, Orthodox Greece, etc. Now, atheism the same. They didn't interfere in our dogmas, the atheists. They just said, God doesn't exist. The Orthodox Church is uh, lies, etc., etc. And they taught this atheism. And yet from that, who would have thought of the worst brainwashing that ever the world has seen, completely brainwashing, more than even the pagans did in the first centuries, who would have ever thought that out of that, they would drop in 1991, they collapsed, the Soviet Union collapsed, and we'll look at it today. Yeah, some of you, if you want to, you go to YouTube, go and have a look. And then you see the president of Russia, Putin, who used to be KGB himself, going to Orthodox services and doing his cross. So, do you think I'm right? Heterodox schools are worse than being under the Turks and being under communists because those kids that come out of that, they're completely confused. Even Arsenios of Cappadocia, the one who baptised St. Jesus, even he said, he said, when Protestants come to Greece and they teach, they're teaching Christianity, but distorted. Muslims do not teach Christianity. And atheists do not teach Christianity. Roman Catholics do, Protestants do. They teach Christianity and distort, and the child becomes confused. In his introduction to the new martyrology, St. Nicodemus discusses the connection of the ancient martyrs with the new martyrs of the church. Quote, this is St. Nicodemus speaking, the long time that has passed from the ancient times during which the early saints lived to the present can cause in some, if not unbelief, at least some doubt and hesitation. He's saying that because when we read a life of an ancient saint, it's so many centuries ago, a person can say, did that happen? Or I don't believe that. How do I know that happened 1,000 years ago? or 2,000 years ago. He continues on. One may wonder, St. Nicodemus says, how humans who by nature are weak and frightened were able to endure so many and frightful tortures. But these new martyrs of Christ uproot from the hearts of Christians all doubt and hesitation and establish or renew in them unhesitating faith in the old martyrs. So he's saying, by reading the lives of the new martyrs in, our, in, in his times, this will now give us the faith to believe in the ancient martyrs because it's the same. Just as food strengthens all those bodies that are weak from starvation, and just as rain causes trees that are dried from drought, to blossom again. So he's going to use an analogy. So food makes the, a sick body stronger and water makes a plant, that's a tree that's drying up to bloom again. He says, so 
these new martyrs strengthen and renew the ancient faith of the martyrs in present-day Christians whose faith had become weak and dried up. So there's the weak body and dried up tree. He says today a lot of people are weak in the faith and dried up spiritually and do not believe or have doubts that the ancient martyrs did the things that we read about thousands of years ago. And he says, no, read the lives of the new martyrs, read my book of 87 martyrs, he says, and see that in our times we have martyrs who suffered the same way, etc. All what we read about the ancient saints, we see it in the new saints, the new martyrs. What St. Nicodemus, that stops St. Nicodemus, now I'm now back to the talk. What St. Nicodemus says about the significance of the new martyrs to the Orthodox Christians of his time can be applied in our times to all groups of recent saints. Hierarchs, missionaries, monastics, martyrs, confessors of faith, apostles, fools for Christ, unmercenary healers, righteous priests, etc. In other words, by studying the lives of the recent saints, our faith in the ancient saints will be renewed and strengthened. That's why it's important for us to read the lives of recent contemporary saints. And I'll go through a few groups quickly. I'm going to go through them quickly. So, hierarchs. Who can we read? Bishop Augustine of Florina, Greek saint, 2010. He passed away. Great. Great sermons, the books that he produced. Bishop Constantine. He's a Russian Orthodox church outside of Russia bishop. He died in 1996. His relics are incorrupt at Jordanville. St. John of San Francisco, he died in 1966. His relics are incorrupt. Miracles, and we have his life. We even have people that are still alive that knew him. St. Nikolai Velimirovich, 1956. He died in our times. Saint Seraphim Sobolev, 1950, a Bulgarian hierarch, a saint. Saint, Ma, how do you say the, the Serbian one? Mad, Madari, Madari, Madarios. I think in Greek we say Madarios. 1935, Serbian American Canadian. He was a bishop. He was a bishop. It's long. It's a bit long ago. 1935. But of course, uh, what's the interesting about him is that. Uh, his fruits are still being felt in America. There's churches that he built, etc., things like that. St. Nectarius, 1920, 100 years ago. St. Raphael, 1915, Lebanese-American, Bishop of Brooklyn. I went from really recent to that. That's a few. Number two, Confessors of the Faith. Blessed Philaret of New York, who died in 1985, Russian Orthodox Roker, he was um, a bishop in New York. His relics are in Jordanville, incorrupt. And he was a great confessor. In other words, he stood up for orthodoxy against the other patriarchs who were denying orthodoxy through their ecumenism and things like that. He was one of the few who stood up for orthodoxy. And his relics are incorrupt. Archbishop of Verki of Jordanville, 1976. He was a great confessor of the faith. 
New Confessor Bishop St. Vanavas Nastic, is it Nastic? Nastic? 1964, he was a Serbian. 1964. And Mercery Healers, number three, group three. St. Luke the Surgeon, 1961. St. Matron of Moscow, 1952. St. John of Kronstadt, 1909. He was a, a Mercery Healer too, did a lot of healings. Now, monastic elders and, elder, and eldresses, big list. Elder Ephraim, 2019, I just already discussed. Mother Theodosia, 2014, Russian. She was a lay eldress for many years, and in the last 10 years she became a um, monastic, similar to St. Matrona, and was tonsured, yeah. Father John Christiankin, 2006. Elder Favels, 2003, Serbian. Archimandrite Isaac, a Lebanese Athenite, 1998. He lived just close to St. Basius. I saw him once there. I'll tell you a story about that. So I was at Elder Paisius one day, other people there, and um, he was talking, and then he noticed, I think it was this priest, Archimandrite Isaac, or it might have been the other one that was close, Gregory. There's two that lived very close to him. Anyway, as he was talking, he goes, O papas, O papas. We've, I can't even express it. It wasn't like the same way I was toned. It was like with a respect, with a awe, the priest. The saint said that about them. Why did he say that? What do you think he meant? He, what he was trying to say was this. There's someone who's walking past with the orthodox priesthood. And he found that that, that gave him fear in a good sense, respect. He understood the power of the orthodox priest, which a lot of you, unfortunately, don't know. I get letters from overseas. Hi there. <laughs> so sometimes I'm a little bit cheeky. So they write a letter, I write back, and I go, cheese. <laughs> um, anyway, I've got to send them a pamphlet explaining clergy etiquette. How do you write to a priest, to a clergyman, to a monastic? Hi there. Good day. Just people don't understand how to do that. Anyway, so I, I send them the pamphlet which explains how they do it. Most of them correct themselves. If they don't correct themselves, I, I don't answer anymore. I say to them, you know why I'm asking this? Because you're going to miss out on the priest's blessing. You are missing out for yourself and for your children to write. Dear Father, whoever, please bless me and my family. Then the priest writes back, God bless you and your family. Do you know what that is? Do you know what that can do? That opens up the heavens. But the priest could be sinful. Okay. There's a little story from the Holy Fathers. A man was saying to himself, 
Why should I go to a priest if that priest is doing sins? How can he have the grace? How can God work through him? Even though the stupid man didn't even remember that Judas, who was disgusting, demonic, still had the apostolic grace to do miracles. But anyway, he didn't think of that. So, whatever the apostles could do, Judas could do. Right up to the time that he hanged himself. And even when he hanged himself, God still had compassion on him and made the tree bow down to that, but he just kept on trying and trying until he did it. Like suicide victims. A lot of times they try, they fail, they try, they fail, they try, they f- and then they fail. Some of them mentally ill. I'm not talking about that. Judas wasn't mentally ill. The church does not condemn mentally ill if they suicide. Only if they are in their right mind. They're not given an orthodox funeral. You can't commemorate them. You can do things privately for them. So this man was thinking, well, why should I go to them? You know, they, they do sinful lives. So he was going along there in the forest there and he got thirsty and he saw this stream of water and he drank from it. He goes, this is beautiful. This is really nice water. So sweet. Where did this water come from? So... He started walking, following the stream, following the stream. Do you know the story? Do you know the story, Father? You don't know it. Okay. And what did he see? He saw a dead dog, and the water was coming out of the dog's mouth. And then he, I can't remember fully, then they heard a voice saying, yes, the priest could be sinful, but they still have the pure grace of the Holy Spirit because of the priesthood. That's the truth. Yes, many priests. It's good to have a holy priest. But sometimes they could be slack. They could even not even care. Some of them don't even care, sorry. But when he blesses the bread and when he blesses the wine... That becomes body and blood of Christ. doesn't matter how sinful he is. So when should we stop going to them? We stop going to them if they're teaching heresy. If they believe heresy privately and they don't spread it out, that's a different matter. A lot of them do. Maybe they believe the Pope is a bishop and things like that. Uh, That doesn't concern us as long as he's not preaching it. If the priest is saying things like, it doesn't matter if you have sex before marriage. It doesn't matter the Coptics and the Armenians are the same as the Orthodox. When you hear things like that, you go. Does that mean he's got no priesthood? He does. Then why shouldn't we go? Because that's different to receive the mysteries And it's different to receive heresy and unbelief where it can influence your soul. So if you stop going to that church, you're not going because he's not a priest. But you're not going so as not to learn heresy and sin. That's the difference. You go to other church. God always has his priests everywhere. There's not a time where he doesn't have someone 
There's plenty here. There's plenty in America now. Oh, America's full of traditional priests. Saint Ephrem of Katunakia, who died in 1998, a Greek, he was just canonized just now, recently. Elder Cleopa, 1998, he died, Romanian, hasn't been canonized yet. Blessed Yerondis Sabmakrina, 1995, Greek, very holy, should be canonized. There's books about her now. Saint Paisios, 1994, Greek Athenite. Archimandrite Seraphim Alexiev, 1993, Bulgarian. Saint Porphyrios, 1991, Greek Athenite, but he lived in Athens. Saint Yakovos of Evia, 1991, he died, Greek. Elder Epiphanius Theodoropoulos of Athens, 1989, Greek. Priest monk Simon. Arvanitis, 1988, Greek. Father Seraphim Rose, 1982, American. Saint Amphilochios Macris, 1970, Greek. Elder Yervasios, 1964, Greece. Saint Joseph the Hesychus, 1959, just canonized now, just a few, a few months ago. Uh, Blessed Ephemia, 1958, Serbian. Saint John of Alamo, 1958 was just canonized now, the Russian I read. Saint Hieronymus of Simono Petro Monastery, Mount Athos, 1957 Greek, just canonized now. Saint Daniel of Katunakia, just canonized now, he died in 1929 Greek. Saint Rachel the Eldress, 1928 Russian. All people that have lived close to our times. Righteous priests, Saint Elia. Uh, 1983 Romanian, he died under the communists. Papa Dimitris Gagastathis, 1975, married priest. Father Rostov, 1975, married Russian priest, Russian or Australian. Saint Nicholas Planas, 1932, Greek. Saint John of Constant, 1909, fools for Christ. Saint Gabriel Confessor, 1995, Georgian Orthodox priest monk. Saint Sophia of Clisura, 1974, Greek. She was a fool for Christ. Her life is in the Potamitis Publishing, Paterikon for Kids, number 36. Blessed Paraskeva of Sarov, fool for Christ of the Evio Monastery, uh, 1915, Russian. New Martyrs. New Martyrs and Confessors of the Communist Yoke, 1918, until the last ones, I don't know when the last ones were. We have Russian, Serbian, Bulgarian, Romanian, Georgia, Albania, all these died under communism. Then we have Serbian Orthodox new martyrs of the Second World War, killed by Roman Catholic Ustashi. There's a whole group of them, 800,000. New martyrs who died under Nazism. We have a lot of them that died under the Germans. Apostles and missionaries, priest Daniel Sisoev, 2009 Russian, he died, I think Muslims killed him, missionary priest. Priest Igor Rosen, 2001 uh, Russian, martyred by Muslims in a, in a country that used to be under the Soviet Union. Father Kosmas of Grigoriu, apostle to Zaire, 1989 he died, Greek. 
Archman Wright Chrysostom Papasarandopoulos, 1972. He was a missionary of the church in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, and Congo. Numara Archpriest Vasily Matsis, I think, uh, 1945, married Polish priest who was a missionary in North America. Saint Sebastian of Jackson and San Francisco, 1940, Serbian, is that correct? Serbian, yeah. Saint Alexander Khotovitsky, so that, 1937, uh, missionary of America. There are, that's just a few that I found. There are so many. The church does not stop producing saints because Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Another thing is, why are so many saints being canonised? More, I would say, they become quicker. Like sometimes saints used to pass 50, 100 years, 200 years before they were canonised. And now the church just is canonised them very quickly. What do you think? It starts with I. I, I. Internet, that's it. It's because of the internet. Because it's the, these saints that could have been known in their areas in, say, in Greece and, you know, slowly spread and after centuries they might get canonised. Now, uh, these saints are being canonised in sometimes 20 years. Saint Sophronius of Essex as well. Is he being canonised? Oh, I didn't know that. Saint Sophronius of Essex, I actually met him too uh, when I went to England. He um, was a spiritual child of Staritz Siluanos. And he died in uh, Sophronius. When did he die? Well, I met him in when uh, in the eighties. I met him. Yeah. Well, within within probably twenty years, he was canonised. Why? It's because it's all spreading much quicker than before. What I want to do now is I want to go through some. Ancient and contemporary miracles. I'm going to go through an ancient miracle that happened many years ago, some 500, some 1,000, some 2,000 years ago, and then compare them to contemporary saints to say, to, I want to show you that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes? If you could. Yes. Is there anything significant about meeting Saint Sophronia? I'm interested, just if you could share. Significant in... Oh, when I went there, yeah. I, I asked him a, a, a question, some problem that I was going through, and um, his answer was incredibly harsh. It was a very strong uh, way which I couldn't do. Does it mean I'm going to lose myself? No, I just couldn't do his advice. It was a, some advice that was really um, very, very ascetical, very, I just couldn't do that. Yeah. But he was a holy person. You know what's better? It's when you say, I can't do it, yeah. than to say, I'll do it, when you're not going to do it. These are all like hypocrisies. Christ prefers someone that says, I can't. We read the lives of saints, where you see saints that were given advice by other saints and didn't do it. But they still became saints. They missed out on the benefit of not listening to that, which is different to when they're under obedience. It's different. Well, you know, when you go ask advice, it's, um, 
it's a different thing. And the saints, true saints, always left it open. Like Father Philothus of Arcos. Saint Nectarius, if I remember right, he was a spiritual child of Saint Nectarius. And Saint Nectarius told him not to go to Manathos. Don't go to Manathos, be a monk. Be a monk in the world. But Father Philothus didn't listen. So he made his way up towards northern Greece, which at that time were under the Turks. And first he had a lot of trouble getting permits. The Turks wouldn't give it to him. A lot of trouble finding permits. And then he was attacked by a pack of dogs as well. And at the end, he didn't get to Manathos. He went to the island of... Is it Baros? Yeah, Baros. Now you might say, oh, but he was punished. Maybe punishment, I don't think. I think to me it's guidance. Guidance. God's shown him not to go. You know, a lot of times people got advice from saints without properly even knowing that they were saints. If you read the life of Saint uh, Porfirio, you'd be surprised that those around him, a lot of times they didn't even listen to him. Even though he, did, he, even though he already did miracles. Saint Eusebius, you think, that you think all his nuns listened to him? I don't think so. A lot of times after they're gone, we realise who they were. So let's start with the first miracle. Speaking and communicating in unknown languages. This is the story of Saint Ephrem and Saint Basil the Great. The righteous Ephrem the Syrian, 373, that's uh, just under 1,700 years ago, had a great desire to visit and speak with Saint Basil the Great. He went to his church and spoke to him through an interpreter that he brought with him, saying, this is what he said, I ask one favour of your eminence, servant of God. I desire that you pray to God that I might speak Greek, for I do not at all know this language of yours. The saint, St. Basil admitted, your request, Holy Father and lead of the desert, is beyond my power. But inasmuch as you have asked this with faith, let us both pray to God. And when they finished their prayer, St. Basil cried with a loud voice, quote, the grace of the Holy Spirit be with you and speak Greek. Immediately, as the saint spoke this command, oh, the wonder, St. Ephraim opened his mouth and was speaking Greek, even as St. Basil and the Christians of that place, in other words, even their dialect. Afterward, he departed again for the wilderness, glorifying and blessing God. I like that part there where St. Basil says, according to your faith. A lot of times when someone goes to a priest, someone might ring me and ask for advice. And at times I feel that the advice, I just feel strong, I feel inspired, I'm giving this advice and I go, I wonder why I feel like that. And then I realise it's the faith of the person asking. Not necessarily to do with me. So that faith, when you go and ask a question with faith, it's, it's remarkable. And I've experienced that. Then you've got others that come and ask without much faith and when you're speaking to them, it, you get confused. I get confused. It just doesn't flow. I'm just all over the place because the faith of the person 
is not proper. That's an ancient miracle. About 1,700 years ago. Does that happen now? So a bit hard to believe. You say to yourself, that was many years ago. Did it happen? Is it like the story was maybe distorted a bit? Who knows? But does it happen now? Well, let's have a look. Father Basil of Grigoriou Monastery of Manathos gives a related testimony. Quote, I had gone to the elder's cell around midday. The door was locked. A young man was waiting there, lying down on the ground. He was a Greek-American who knew only English. And this father, Father Basil, said to him, how are you going to communicate with the elder? God will send someone, he answered, like you. I ended up serving as the interpreter, relying on the little bit of broken English I knew, and even that I barely remembered. So he knew a little bit of English. But I noticed, to my great surprise, that the elder understood everything, everything the man told him, even better than I did. Of course, he would answer him in Greek, using many simple and wise examples which I interpreted. But as the, this Greek-American was speaking to Father Basil and said, you know, tell the elder this, this and this, the elder, without Father Basil saying in Greek, or oh, elder, he's saying this and this, he just started answering. How many years ago did this miracle happen? Maybe 300? 400? 200? No. Who's the elder anyway? Oh, Elder Paisios. Elder Paisios. This miracle occurred and we read in the life of Elder Paisios who just died in 1991. Or was it 94? I think 94. I'll never forget as this continues, so let's continue. I'll never forget the answer that he gave to one of the boy's problems which showed his great faith and trust in the providence of God. He said, my mother asks me for money all the time and whatever I give her from the little savings I have, she just wastes. I don't know what to do, elder. Listen, my boy, Father Paisius answered him. The money that you give to your mother, give to some poor person instead, as charity. When you do it, say a prayer. Say, my God, I'm giving this on behalf of my mother. You take care of her. Then God will take care of her by himself. He'll find a way. Sometimes people ask me, you know, I say to them, you can give some books away or you can give some money to the poor. They say, but do I have to tell the poor person that this is for my, my mother's soul or something like that? No, you do a prayer within you. You do a prayer within you. You can say to the priest, for example, here, Father, here's 15 books, give them out to your parishioners and pray for my father that's passed away or something. But I love this a formula here. Beautiful. My God, I'm giving this 
on behalf of my mother. You take care of her. Then God will take care of her by himself. He'll find a way. And that's what you, you, you can do to help those who you love. Another example. It is well known that St. Paisios did not know any language other than Greek. Not even a little bit of English. I can verify that. He didn't know anything of, of any other language. Father Paul relates the following. Some of these people are probably still alive. Once I went to see Elder Paisios with a Spanish man named Daniel who had converted to orthodoxy. He wanted to speak with the elder and I was supposed to interpret for them. Well, Daniel asked him a question and before I could translate it, the elder answered, uh, Daniel was amazed and he asked me twice, what's happening here? You're not translating anything. <laughs> I told him, it isn't, it isn't my fault, he's answering your questions. The elder put him at ease saying, forget about interpretation. Tell me what you want. So they spoke Daniel in Spanish and the elder in Greek. Uh, I was amazed. Smiling, I said, what do you need me for? I'll leave you alone. The older took my hand and said, stay, but don't tell anyone about this. I considered what a great saint the older was. I listened to their whole conversation, but afterwards I couldn't remember anything, except for the last thing the elder said to Daniel, you must confess this sin. So obviously Daniel told him about a sin that he did. He goes, go and confess it, because... Elder Paisius was not a priest. Um, no, just, just one more. A spiritual child, I want to finish this section. A spiritual child of the elder relates, quote, One day I went to visit the elder very early in the morning. The light had just begun to shine. I rang the little bell and the elder opened up for me, smiling. Elder Paisius had a little, like a bell at his gate, because his gate was far away from his house. People used to ring the bell, he would hear it, and then he would drop a key down the line, of a, like, a, like a wire, then you get the key, you open the gate up, and then he takes the key back up, and then you come in. That's how it was, until people discovered a back door. Then after that, no one went for the front, everyone used to go out the back. Um, just interesting, when you used to go to him, like you just see streams of people coming from all over the world to see him. So you go at the back and you come to a scene where you see the elder sitting there in his yard on a log and then you see 20, 30 people there. He asked me, what do you say, Papa? This person that went to must have been a priest. What do you say, Papa? When St. Ephraim the Syrian visited St. Basil the Great, did they need an interpreter? I don't think so, Elder, I told him. I entered the guest house and found a foreign visitor there. While the Elder was getting ready to treat us to something, like a lukumi, I started talking with the guest using the little English that I knew, and he told me that he had arrived very late the previous night, having lost his way. Time passed by and the elder put him up for the night. What a blessing that would have been. In the, no in the beginning, they hadn't been able to communicate. No communication. The elder had left him for 10 minutes. Where do you think he went? What do you think the elder, why he left for 10 minutes? 
to go and pray. Probably to pray, he says here. And afterward, they could talk together without any difficulty. The elder spoke Greek and the foreigner English. But they were able to understand each other. Another one, a French tourist had agreed to go to see the elder together with a monk from one of the monasteries. That night there was a vigil at the monk's monastery and after the vigil the monk went to his cell to rest and was going to go later on with this visitor, the French guy, to go to St. Paisios. But the, the, the French person couldn't wait. Desiring to see the elder, the foreigner went down to the hermitage by himself. They had a delightful conversation in which the foreigner was of the opinion that the elder knew French perfectly. Now I'm going to give you an example. Some of you want to believe it, some of you don't. But I'll give you an example that I experienced, not with the elder. There was a young Serbian man who I'd met. And at that time, I had brought over an elder from Greece. His name is Father Methodius. He was an abbot. I had met him in Mount Athos in 1980. He was the one that when I, when I first went to Mount Athos, I went to Philothel Monastery to meet Father Ephraim, but Father, my Father Ephraim has already started his work over in America. He was hardly there, so I didn't, I didn't get to meet him. But I heard about Iviron Monastery, which is further down towards the sea. Philothel was up in the mountain, and I wanted to go there because they had the Portaitisa icon which is one of the great miraculous icons of Mount Athos. It's very miraculous, very big, beautiful icon. And the oil lamp moves whenever there's some um, even good event or moves by itself or some catastrophe. It was moving, I think, a lot in 1991. And what happened in 1991? There was two, it was the very rare Orthodox Pascha and Orthodox Annunciation on the same day. That's happened before too, where St. Cosmas talked about. He goes, the two, the two, kind of called it the two Easters. In other words, Evangelism, uh, the Annunciation and Pascha. And that happened. Uh, he's, he prophesied St. Cosmas of Italia and said that when that happens, we'll be freed from the Turks. I think that's when the Turks were thrown out of northern Greece. Just, I think just before the World War I. Finally got rid of them. And there was going to be another one, 1991. Great events. And I think the oil lamp was moving with joy, spinning around like that. And what was the joy? Who remembers? I said it before. What happened in 1991? Fall of, Fall of communism. Anyway, so I brought this elder over, which I considered to be a, a holy person. Not that I appreciated him, because I never knew much in those times, but I, I brought him over to visit. 
And he was staying there, and this Serbian fellow was there too. And the, the older wanted to speak to him, but he couldn't speak to him because the Serbian young man was around 17, 18, did not know one word of Greek. My desire was that I wanted him to learn Greek. Anyway, this elder would there, and then while I was teaching at school, he would be there at the house, and then he would be teaching him, you know, how to speak a few things, didn't really learn anything. But he was trying to, and he says, oh, you have to learn Greek, you have to learn Greek. Anyway, so I decided to get this young man to do some Greek lessons. So we got some Greek books, and he did first class with tapes, second class with tapes, and third class with tapes. I don't think he did, I don't think he finished third class. And I used to get a teacher to come and mark the work for him, but not teach him anything. No, no grammar, that's it. And then he spoke a little bit also to my mum. A little bit, but not much. Within a short period of time, I noticed that this young man was speaking fluent Greek. And I was saying, oh, it's from the lessons, you know. Because I, I made him do the lessons, he's learned how to speak Greek. And I actually thought that for years. And um, but the problem was that his Greek was better than a lot of us that, that were born to Greek parents. That was a bit strange. After many decades... I began to realise what happened. I said, there's no way he could have learnt that. But I've got to tell you first what happened, sorry. So he learnt Greek and he was speaking it. Then when he went to Greece, he was speaking to the eldresses and the elders in Greek. He even spoke to St. Paisios. He spoke, he spoke to Blessed Macrina and other holy people in fluent Greek, which is why I want him to learn Greek as well, so he can go and have contact with these holy people. I mean, fancy going to Manathos, and if you can't speak properly the language. So that was one of my drives as well. And then I thought about it, and I go, don't think that was from those lessons unless he's gifted in languages. Maybe he's gifted in languages. So I asked him, did you go to Serbian school? He goes, yes. So how were you in Serbian school? A flop. I didn't even learn it properly. Then we went to Serbia. And we went and visited Bishop Artemios, who studied in Greece, spiritual child of Justin Popovich. And Bishop Artemios spoke fluent Greek. So this young man went to him and I was looking, and, and what happened was that the boy who was brought up Serbian was speaking to the bishop in Greek, not Serbian, Greek. So they were communicating in full Greek, even though Bishop Artemios knew Serbian, and this boy was brought up with parents who didn't speak a word of English. So he learned Serbian from young. Now, I thought to myself, something suspicious. Would you say that? Something's not kosher here, is it? <laughs> and I thought, okay, and I, then it began to dawn on me. It was the prayers 
of the elder that I brought over. He had such a, I'll say in a good way, obsession. I'll say in a good way. He had such a, 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 a want that he wanted that boy to learn Greek. And through his prayers is how he learnt the Greek. Not from those books that didn't, didn't. Fluent Greek. And I, to me, that's a miracle. You don't learn a language like that. I mean, he, he speaking better Greek than me, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that good, but I still have gone to Greece so many years, and my parents were, I mean, my father spoke English, I suppose, but um, there, there, was, there was other people, friends or other spiritual children, who were brought up by Greek parents who didn't know a word of English, and those kids spoke Greek, and they even studied HSC Greek, and he spoke better than them. So... I think that's a miracle. Would you say that's a miracle? Not from those books. So uh, God's grace is um, remarkable. So what we'll have now is we're not going to have any sandwiches. We're going to have a break just for beverages, water, juice, drink, coffee, tea, five minutes, and then we'll come back and we'll finish the talk. And after that, we'll have dinner. Dinner's only for those who make it. If you don't make it, you don't get it. You go home. <laughs> okay, go. I should say, I forgot one thing about the Serbian young man, that about a year and a bit after the elder left Australia, having not been able to communicate with this young man one word, about a year and a couple of months later, the young man went to his monastery in Greece and, was, and the elder got what he prayed for and they were able to communicate fully in Greek um, after that. So uh, I forgot to mention that. Um, okay, so there's another miracle. I'm going to talk about an ancient one. but it's not, I, I couldn't find one earlier, but I'm sure they exist, but I just found Saint Dionysus of Zakynthos, Greek saint, there's the island of uh, Zakynthos, Kefalonia, and Corfu. Those three islands are on the west side of Greece, and what's to the left of them is Italy. And those three islands each have an incorrupt whole body of a saint. Zakynthos has Saint Dionysius. Corfu has Saint Spiridon, whose relics are over 1,700 years old. And Kefalonia has Saint Erasmus, the new ascetic. The reason why God arranged for those three saints to be where they are is because those islands were taken over by the Venetians, the, the Catholics. And there was danger of those islands, the Orthodox Christians, losing their orthodoxy. So God gave these saints to be there as a protection and also as a wall, a wall. So those three islands along the west coast of Greece is like a wall to protect Greece from, who knows? To protect Greece from? 
Roman Catholicism, the teachings of the Roman Catholics, because the Greeks on those islands were saying, why should I, for benefit of, of having um, more rights, etc., because the Catholics would give more rights to them, why should I give up my orthodoxy when I have such a great saint here who is a wonder worker and whose relics are incorrupt? Saint Gerasimus, he's famous. By the way, my father comes from the island just close to that, Ithaki. And I was named after Saint Gerasimus in baptism, as is Nini, every second person in Kefalonia and uh, Ithaki, everyone's Gerasimus over there. And uh, just like in Zakynthos, everyone's Denisius, just about. And in, and, and in Corfu, a lot of people Spiridon. So they say, why should I change when I've got such a great saint? And Saint Gerasimus is famous for having power over the demons. A lot of the demon-possessed go there for healing. Some people that are here that went to the monastery many years ago, they said that there was a demon-possessed person there. The abbess was standing there you know, in front of her abbess chair and one of the possessed women just went up and gave her this hard kick, kicked her in the shins. And the abbess just stood there, motionless, didn't express any pain. And a lot of people have been healed there. Of course, Kefalonia is also famous for the icons with the snakes, which the scientists can't work out. How, on the feast of the Domitian, I think a day before or something like that, these snakes come out of the mountains areas there, they walk, they crawl, whatever they do, slither, into the church, and they go up onto the icon, and they just sit there for the whole service while the liturgy is going on and the service for the Domitian. And the snakes are in the streets and things like that. All the, and, the, the, and the strange thing is, miraculous thing is, that children touch them, women touch them, people touch them, and the snakes are placid. They're just there and they just put them in there on their faces and on their arms and wrap them around and nothing. As soon as the priest, orthodox priest, as soon as he says, through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God have mercy and save us, that's the end prayer for the, in the Greek church, they become wild. You can't catch them. They go down from the icon and back into the mountains. There's videos, I think, of that too, and there's a lot of pictures. See, when there's an orthodox miracle, they're not fantasy. They're not some spectacular thing in the air, something that's uh, like only a few see it, or something that is uh, imagination or demonic. Like, they, like a lot of these things are, de are demonic. Orthodox miracles are tangible. Just like when an orthodox priest, even the worst, when he breasts the water, becomes holy, doesn't go off. The Roman Catholic Church, every single priest, even the Pope, when he blesses that water, 
They have to put salt in it. But not for the Orthodox priest. One day when Saint Anusus wanted to go from the monastery to the main village for a certain matter of his, he said to his trustworthy deacon, Daniel, shall we go to the village? He answered, my holy master, meaning Vladika, you know, despota, the weather looks as though it's going to rain. But the saint answered him to the glory of God, let us go and do not bring obstacles. And when they had set out, they hadn't gone far from the monastery when the rain began, the deacon said, um, blood deacon, whatever, did I not say that it was going to rain? It is better for us to turn back, for the rain is increasing more and more. But the true man of God said to him, let us go forward and nothing will happen to us. And the time passed, so also did the rain increase. But, oh thy wonders, Lord, there was so much rain but it did not touch their clothes at all, neither those of the hierarch nor those of the deacon. Now, that would have happened somewhere between 1547 and 1624. That's uh, about 400 years plus. Again, you can have doubts. Did that happen a long time ago? How do I know? Well, let's have a look at... at um a contemporary example of Saint Yakovos, recently canonized Greek saint of Evia, 1920 to 1991, just died recently and he's been canonized. From time to time, upon request, Father Yakovos would take Saint David's holy skull and go on a tour of the villages of northern Evia. because he had the relics of Saint David of Evia. They also offered some money, very little, but useful for the monastery. That's interesting, isn't it? And this great saint took it. I, I added that. This great saint took it. Why? For himself? Uh, no. Very useful for the monastery. Father Yakovos kept absolutely nothing for himself. He would put on his patched up shoes and only decent cassock that he had, that's what we wear, the black, place the holy skull in a woven bag and go around the villages. He did not have an umbrella. It was too expensive for him. In 1955, in the beginning of spring, he set out on foot for two villages on a tour with St. David's holy skull. It was a five-hour walk. Just before he arrived, the weather got bad. He had to overtake the storm, but he was overtaken by it. The holy skull was in danger. It would also be a sacrilege for it to get wet, like um, impious, disrespectful, for the relics to get wet. How would he stand in front of the villagers dripping wet while they venerate it? So Saint Yakovos was very conscious of all those things. The first drops came. The clouds were approaching from the south. As much as he could, he walked faster, holding tightly the holy skull in his arms. He spoke to it the way he knew. I want to talk about that. I've talked about this before when you read his life. He had such a simplicity. He had so much faith. 
that he would talk to the saint. And even used to tell the saint off sometimes. He says, why don't you give this, you know, for this poor person or whatever. He was very, very simple. Now, I want to say something. I sent to Greece a few young men to go around and venerate. And they went there while he was still there. One of them was the Serbian fellow that knew Greek. So what happened was they were sitting there in the reception room and St. Yakovus was there. At that time, they never knew he was going to become a canonised saint of the church because a lot of saints, they look normal. If you saw St. Paisius walking, you wouldn't even think he was a saint if you never knew. Some look, you know, they, don't, they don't walk around with radiating, things like that. Some, of course, did at times, but in general, you can't tell. So they went there, these uh, two or three people, and, um, and St. Yakovos was speaking Greek and said in, in a simple way, oh, says, look at them. Look how they look. They look like angels. Their faces are radiant. And he was sp- speaking like that, in front of the Serbian who knew Greek and the other two that were Greek. They knew, from what I've taught, that when someone praises you in the face, you get out. So they left. The value fathers say, when someone praises you, they're throwing the devil in your face. So how can that be? Suddenly we have this saint that's praising them like that. Doesn't he know that you're tempting someone to speak like that? Now, one thought is perhaps he didn't know they knew Greek, but they must have, he must have known because they were speaking. So why would he do that? Why would he put such temptation? Did they do right by walking out? Well, logically speaking, yes, that they did right because it's, the fathers say to when someone praises you to your face, run away because they're throwing the devil in your face. So can we say now that Saint Yakovos, a great saint, was throwing the devil in their face? And I thought about this for years later on when he, they said he was a saint. I never knew. When they said he was a saint, I go, well, I just cannot. It just doesn't compute how that can be. And I've met other elders and saints. They would never do that. Well, why is he doing that for? And it bothered me, but not saying that he wasn't a saint. I believed that because, he, you know, he, they, they said, and he got canonised. So I had to think, think, think and think and I, and I worked it out. You can see from the way his relationship with the saint, there's the simplicity, the way he would talk to the saint, the way that he would sometimes tell the saint off. Why don't you give what I'm asking you for? These people have need. And things like that. You don't see that a lot in even other saints. And the answer to why he did that was that he, he had gone beyond pride. He was so progressed that he didn't even think that, that. he was just speaking the truth. Oh, look how they look. Things like that. It's true that some saints, they're so, so progressed 
that they have no idea of sexual temptations, they have no idea between a woman and a man and differences, nothing. They're actually passionless. And it doesn't, they're not conscious of these things. And he was, I think that's what he was. And that's why he spoke like that. Imagine that, and they left a holy person without knowing. But they did the right thing in one way. They didn't know, they're only young. I didn't even know, I only just thought of it now. A few years ago, I just couldn't understand why he would do that. The rain got stronger, but he did not get wet at all. He walked hurriedly, stooping down with the holy skull in his arms. It was terrible, it was a terrible downpour. Nevertheless, not even one drop fell within one metre around him, truly. One metre in front, behind, to the right and to the left. He arrived in the village and the church completely dry, both he and the Holy Skull, which was similar to what we read in St. Dionysius, which was 400 years before, and probably similar, I would have found out, if I looked, I just didn't have time, ancient saints. And why is that? Because Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Same thing, same miracles, same grace. Number three... St. Nikolai, in the prologue on, on October the 14th, he writes, examples of how the saints reveal their hidden relics to men justify the honour rendered to the relics of the saints, not to mention the miraculous actions of these relics. So St. Nikolai says that there are two things which show that we should venerate the saints. One, that they reveal where their relics are a lot of times and that they do miracles. That justifies how the Orthodox venerate saints. For a long time, no one could locate the grave of Saint Paraskeva or Paraskevi in Greek. I'll just say Paraskevi, I'm used to it. The new, October the 14th, which was a 10th century saint. Then it happened that a sailor died and his body was carelessly laid near the saint's grave. When the body began to decay and to emit an unbearable stink stench, a monk who lived nearby summoned the peasants to help him bury the corpse. No one knew that St. Paraskevi's grave was nearby because they forgot, which happens sometimes with time. But this monk, he couldn't stand the smell and he asked peasants to come from the village and say to them, come and help me bury this corpse. It happened that they buried him in St. Paraskevi's own grave without knowing. They actually put him in her grave. That night, St. Paraskevi appeared in a dream to one of those peasants, George by name, who had buried the corpse. She appeared as a beautiful and elegantly adorned queen, surrounded by many glorious soldiers. She said, George, unbury my relics at once and lay them in another place, for I can no longer endure the stench from that corpse. Now, one would say, why is saint speaking so horribly against a person who died? When in the when in during funeral services we even venerate them. Okay, he began to stink, but still, should you speak like that? And I and I think, from what I understand, uh, that I think the stench came especially from the sins of the sailor, because the saints would not speak like that, because we're supposed to honour even our orthodox people that died. That's why we have them in beautifully laid out in the church. We go and kiss. Uh, some people kiss or kiss the icon, Michelle, honour. So um, not necessarily, even if that person's made it, we don't even know if they've made it. 
but we don't speak like that. And Saint Paraskevia, I think, was speaking like that because he's uh, uh, he stunk spiritually as well. So then she told him who she was, where she was from. The same night, a local peasant, a woman named Ephemia, had the same dream. The next day, the peasants began to dig and, in fact, found the relics of Saint Paraskevi. They were extraordinarily fragrant and soon proved to be miracle-working. Saint Nikolai continues, concerning the relics of Saint Gervasius and Saint Protasios, first century saints, October the 14th, Saint Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, who is a fifth century saint, who we celebrate on 7th of December, relates, so this happened to Saint Ambrose, he relates how their relics were discovered in a similar manner to what Saint Nicholas said above. One night, two handsome youths and an old man appeared to Saint Ambrose, who was awake. So it wasn't a dream, it was a vision. They actually appeared in front of him. He thought that the old man was the Apostle Paul. While the young men remained silent, the old man spoke to St. Ambrose concerning the two youths, saying that they were Christ's martyrs and that their relics lay in the very place where St. Ambrose was praying to God at that time. He went on to say that everything else concerning them would be revealed in a book that St. Ambrose would find in their grave. The following day, St. Ambrose recounted his vision and began to dig and found the relics of the two youths. From the book that he found, he learned that their names were Yervasius and Protasios. In the presence of St. Ambrose, a certain blind man named Severus touched these holy relics and immediately received his sight. So these are some accounts of the revelation of, of relics in, in, in ancient time. Again, we can get that. Oh, that's many years ago. St. Ambrose lived uh, 5th century, about 1,500 or more years ago. And the other one with St. Paraskevi, that happened around, uh, 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 I don't know, when, anyway, many hundreds of years ago. So we can get that doubt in us and say, where did that come from? By the way, this book, I don't like things about books and graves and special messages, um, but this is different. Because the Mormons, their religion is based on a young man called Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith was pondering about all the different religions in America at the time, all the Protestant religions, and which one had the truth, he was saying to himself. And then some angel, I think, appeared to him and said that if you dig such and such a place, I can't remember the full story, you'll find the Book of Mormons with all that, and that's how the Mormon religion began. And you say, oh, isn't it the same as the Orthodox? No, because that book contained nothing of a dogmatic nature. There's nothing dogmatic. The church has the dogma. It's all there. We've got ecumenical councils. We don't have books and graves and revelations from angels and things like that to establish orthodox dogma because that could be demonic. The sure way to what is orthodox dogma is through the councils, the ecumenical councils. That's their authority. While in the Roman Catholic Church, the authority is the Pope he says what's dogma. When he sits on his throne, he speaks, they say, ex-cathedra, whatever it's called, they say that he, when he speaks, he speaks of the Holy Spirit, and what he says is dogma. No, we don't have that. That's why we'll never mix, we'll never join with them. They will never, ever, as St. Nectarius says, give up that the Pope is the head equal to Christ and that he is the, the source of dogma, while the Orthodox Church says that our authority is the ecumenical councils, we will never give that up, and they will never give theirs up, and therefore there will never be union. 
That's what Saint Nectarius says. Um, you want to listen to him, or you want to listen to the ecumenists that are around the world today. And by the way, when you find out, which you never will, but let's just say it, I've mentioned before that we have the relics of Saint Nectarius, miracles of Saint Nectarius, the relics of Saint John, Saint Nikolai Velimirovich, all these holy fathers who never, ever spoke in positive terms about the Roman Catholic Church or union, etc. And then we have the uh, ecumenists that are part of the Orthodox Church. Where are their relics? Where are the miracles at their, at their graves? Where is there that the Orthodox are flocking to their graves to ask for prayers on their knees, pray for us, patriarch, who said that um, it was a mistake when the, when the Orthodox and the Catholics separated. And where are those who said that the Orthodox and Catholic Church is like two, the two lungs of a human, both are needed to breathe, and only together with the church? Do we have their incorruptible relics? Do we have their miracles? The answer is no, 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 no. To the power of N. Or infinity. Forever. But we have here, whose relics emanate myrrh, who have miracles, who people flock and they answer prayers for problems, for possession, for mental illness, for marital problems, for cancer, for all these things. Find me one ecumenist who has performed a miracle. I'm not going to mention names. That's not for me. I'm not that spiritual to be able to denounce. That's not for me. We'll leave that for holy people. I'm only going to speak generally. Find me one elder. Find me one Eldress, find me one holy priest who died and became holy with their relics and miracles, who would advise parents to send their children to heterodox schools. Find me one. If you can, please tell me. So when people come to me and say, Oh, Father, you know, I went to a priest and he said that I should send my kid to a Catholic school. And I say to him, okay, ask just one question. Ask him to tell you one, one holy person who would give that advice. And you'll never find one. Because no Orthodox saint, no Orthodox elder, and no, oh, but the public schools are bad. So were communist schools are bad. But there's a lot of Orthodox that came out of them. So... The Mormon religion began with that book. We don't have those books. Nor do we have little visions that one saint or a little kid saw that says, I am the Immaculate Conception, like it happened to Bernadette a few hundred years ago. And then from that, the church brought another one of their heresies, the Roman Catholic Church, brought another heresy into their many heresies, which was the Immaculate Conception. that the mother of God was born free of the original sin, something like that. 
Sorry, I don't really have any interest in those things. I don't study it much, but I think that's what it is, something like that. We are all born with original sin. Even the mother of God was born with original sin. That's why we're baptised and we we are wiped away from that. We're not responsible for the original sin. We're not responsible for what Adam and Eve did, but we are suffering the consequences of that sin. And what's the consequence of that sin? Sickness, death, sin. That's all the consequences of that sin when Adam and Eve fell. But we're not responsible for that. We're responsible for our sins, of course. Now, let's see. That's an ancient example. Do we have any modern examples of that? Let's have a look. A similar thing happened 60 years ago on the island of Mytilini, Greece. In 1959, a pious man named Angelos Rales decided to build a chapel near the ruins of an ancient men's monastery. The workman who was digging the foundations found a grave containing a human skeleton. The head was separate from the body and the lower jaw was missing. The workman gave little significance to the discovery. Having placed the bones in a sack, continued his work. Later on, it recounts that he made even fun of the relics. Anyway, he he got punished. And then he repented. Many people in the neighbourhood, quite independently, began to see dreams concerning the former monastery and the monks who had been martyred there. The saints also started to appear in daylight and at night in and around the the old monastery and were seen by many pilgrims. Altogether, the relics of three saints were discovered. Little by little, they revealed the details of their lives and martyrdom. They were Saints Raphael, Nicholas and Irene. Many miraculous cures began to be recorded and have continued unceasingly to the present day. That is one of the main orthodox shrines in Mytilini and the abbess that was there was very spiritual. She just died recently. And so this happened a few decades ago. There's another one, the last one. Saint Ephraim's life and martyrdom remained forgotten for nearly 500 years until 1950. By then, a woman's monastery had sprung up on the site of the old men's monastery. This is just outside Athens. Uh, One day, the abbess of the new monastery, Makaria, was walking through the ruins. She felt the presence of a saint and knew that this was a holy place. She seemed to sense an inner voice telling her to dig in a certain spot. She indicated the, the place to a workman whom she had hired to make repairs to the old, at the old monastery. After some hours, they found a skull. The air was immediately filled with a sweet fragrance and Mother Macaria knew it was the skull of a holy person. Mother Macaria then told the workman to go and leave her there by herself. She knelt and reverently kissed the skull. As she cleared away more earth, she saw the sleeves of the saint's cassock. The cloth was thick and appeared to have been woven many centuries ago. So she knew this was uh, many hundreds of years ago. She uncovered the rest of the body and began to remove the bones, which appeared to be those of a martyr. Now, how does she know it was a martyr? Obviously because a martyr had a crushed skull and you know, things like that. Abbas Bakaria prayed over the newly discovered relics. Because it was night, she left the relics in the ground and went to Vespers. During Vespers, the saint appeared to her holding a candle and said, how long are you going to leave me here? Forgive me, she said. I will take care of you tomorrow when it becomes morning. 
The saint disappeared and the abbess continued to read Vespers. In the morning after matins, Mother Macaria cleaned the bones and placed them in the altar area of the church, lighting a candle before them. That night, Saint Ephraim appeared to her in a dream. He thanked her for caring for his relics, then said, then he said, My name is Saint Ephraim. From his own lips, she heard the story of his life and martyrdom. Abbas Macaria reposed in 1999. Not many years ago, 21 to whatever, years ago. That's why when you see icons of Saint Ephraim, the new, he's holding a candle because he was holding the candle when he spoke to her. That happened in our times. Again, Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And that's just a few. You, there's probably examples in Russia and Serbia, everywhere. The next example of ancient and modern is the following. In the 4th century, the Roman Empire was comprised of an area that today corresponds to that of a total of 36 countries spread in Europe, Africa and Asia, the Roman Empire, the pagan empire. There they had parts, large areas in Asia, Europe and Africa. That was called the Roman Empire. During that time, there were 40 brave soldiers serving in a famous legion of the Imperial Roman Army. These men were elite soldiers, experienced, courageous, honest and humble. These 40 brave martyrs steadfastly believed in the Lord Jesus and were devout Christians. Their commander thought very highly of them and always entrusted them with the most difficult tasks. However, in those times, it was illegal to be a Christian even more so if you were in the army. The emperor once issued an edict, that's a decree or commandment, demanding all imperial soldiers uh, and officers throughout the, his vast empire to prove that they were pagan, to prove that they were idolaters. Otherwise, they would be put to death. In other words, to escape death, they had to publicly worship idols. At that time, the 40 brave soldiers were stationed in the little town of Sebast, which is Sevasti in Greek, now in Turkey. They were summoned to the ruler of the region to come and worship the false gods made of stone. All 40 of them refused to do so and were thrown into the dungeon. When they were given another chance to renounce Christ and to save their lives, all as one, they answered boldly, indeed we serve the emperor with all our abilities and bodily strength. Our souls, however, belong only to our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. That's important because people say to me, but what happens if we live in a time where someone's an unbeliever or things like that? And we say, we are obedient to the rulers as long as what they say is not contrary to what we believe in the church. I have no problem with that. And we read in the uh, lives of saints that the saints would pray even for pagans, pagan emperors, who believed that they were God. And they still prayed for them and said, my Lord, meaning not Lord, is it dear? My uh, sir, so to say, sir, your highness, I pray for your health and I, prepare, I pray for the success of your empire. But I'm not going to listen to you if you tell me to worship idols. That's what the saints did. See how we read the lives of the saints and we know how do we uh, deal with unbelieving governments and things like that. The soldiers were then stripped of their military uniform, bound and were forced to stand in a pond in the outskirts of Sebast. 
Uh, then they stationed a guard around the lake to prevent any of them escaping, like a, a group of soldiers. At night, there was a terrible frost, and the surface of the pond froze around the bodies of the martyrs to increase their pain and suffering and to persuade even one of them to deny Christ and acknowledge the idols of Rome, the torch was heated and, light and lit up a bath by the side of the lake in the sight of the frozen martyrs. So the martyrs were in the river, freezing the lake, and they had a bathhouse there. They lit it up with fire to make sure that they, they could see them, and inside was the warm waters, etc. And they said, worship the idols, and you can go there. Because they were suffering in there. During these difficult hours, the 40 soldiers encouraged one another to stay strong to the very end of their last most important battle. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved, Matthew 10.22. See, in the lives of saints, they quote the Bible a lot. And by quoting the Bible, we understand what that means. Well, there's an example of he who endures to the end, he who doesn't deny Christ, even in suffering, will be saved. And I like the part where it says they encourage one another. That's it's important to be in a part of an orthodox community where your fellow orthodox, are, you are encouraging each other. So in, in time when that person's down, the others are encouraging, then that person might be down, then the others encourage him. See, it's important. Woe to him who's on his own. As the night went on, one of them, overcome by the suffering of the freezing waters, left the lake and hurried to the heated bath. But the, but the difference in temperature killed him all at once. Immediately he died, and he was deprived of the crown of victory. The others, heartbroken at the loss of their companion, redoubled their prayer. Prayer for what? Prayer that they don't deny Christ. Redoubled their prayer. All the guards were sleeping on the shore except for one. Suddenly from heaven there appeared an extraordinary light which warmed the water in the lake and the martyrs. When he looked up, he could see 39 radiant crowns coming down towards the soldiers to be placed on their heads. He saw a 40th radiant crown still hanging in the air, so he threw off his uniform and hurried into the lake to join the martyrs while crying, I am a Christian too. Standing in the water, he prayed, Lord God, I believe in you in whom... These soldiers believe, add me to their number and make me worthy to suffer with your servants. Then the 40th crown appeared over his head. The next morning, the prefect came to collect the bodies of the martyrs, expecting them to be dead. The entire town also gathered. He and the people were astounded to find the 40 still alive and praying. Then the wicked judges ordered that the lower parts of their legs be broken and their bodies thrown into a huge fire. The heartless pagans tried to prevent the Christians from venerating the relics of the martyrs and scattered them into the nearby river. Nevertheless, their precious and holy relics were miraculously recovered. I think sometimes God allows them to light up and the people can see them in the water and collect them. The example of the 40 holy martyrs provides us with encouragement to continue our daily battles and our efforts to live a life in Christ. The story of the martyrdom is also important as it reminds us to remain faithful to Christ to the very end. And when did that happen? 1600, how long ago was this? 313. We're talking about close to 1700 years ago. Again, you can have doubt. 
that happen, where the water's warmed up, freezing waters. You can have doubt or you can have unbelief. Has that happened in our times? Let's have a look. Holding a bachelor's degree in theology from Bucharest University, um, he served as a priest, as a parish priest, and for a year as a missionary priest in Odessa, Ukraine. He was arrested in 1952 by the communists and sent with a group of priests to hard labour. Since he became grievously ill, he was moved to a sanatorium jail, like a prison hospital. Released after two years, he was arrested again in 1959 and sent to a labour camp. So who are we talking about? His name's priest Elia Lakatisu. I can't speak Romanian, but uh, something like that. 1909 to 1983, not long ago. It was there that something took place similar to the wonders written about in the lives of the saints on January the 30th, 1962, on the Feast of the Three Holy Hierarchs, the guards, more violent than ever, and heavily armed, forced the prisoners to, to a lake whose middle was covered with the dense growth of reeds. They wanted, they wanted these prisoners to collect these reeds, maybe to, for fire, I'm not sure, to burn them and things like that. During a terrible frost, dressed only in the torn prison jackets, which they wore all year round, the prisoners were ordered to enter the waist-deep water, cut the reeds and bring them back to shore. Troubled, they did not know what to do, since danger threatened them from both sides, the ice-cold lake waiting to swallow them up and the guards with their fingers on the trigger ready to shoot them. In that moment, with the strong faith of the 40 martyrs of Sevastyi, Father Ilya urged them all to go in. With their clothes frozen by the bone-chilling coal, they cut reeds and carried them to the shore, back and forth, cutting them, taking them to the shore, coming back again, until noon. But at noon, oh, the miracle, a July-like July for them is summer. So a July-like sun. This was winter over there. Began shining from above, warming the freezing air to over 75 degrees or 24 degrees Celsius. The prisoners dried out their clothes, dried themselves and enjoyed the summertime weather, even though it was the middle of freezing cold winter. Father Elia's fervent prayer had prevailed. None of the prisoners even caught a cold. Such was Father Elia, a humble man of few words, but always in communion with God, who promptly heard his prayers. On September 29th, 1993, the incorrupt fragrant body of Father Elia was discovered. Since then, many miracles have been performed through his holy relics, at his grave in Bucharest, illnesses are healed, problems are solved, like marital problems, problems with children, all those, and conversions to orthodoxy take place. Peace and joy fill the hearts of those who visit the relics, his relics, bearing witness that the righteous live forever. Father Leah is, is living proof of the work of grace in this day and age. His many years of suffering in the communist prisons purified him as gold is refined in a furnace, bestowed on him the luminous halo of a confessor. So from that, I did it really quick, but from that, what, we see that the same miracle that happened to the 40 martyrs 1,700 years ago also happened 
to Saint Elia and we say, well, who's this Saint Elia? Did he exist? Well, I think so. His relics are there and his relics are doing miracles. That's why it's important to read contemporary saints and ancient saints. But I would advise you to read more of the contemporary saints so that when you read the ancient saints, you're not going to be tempted too much with these unbeliefs and doubt because it happens now. Now I'm going to tell you something that's really unbelievable, one can say. Saint Enufrios was a 4th century saint. He had been living in the desert for 60 years when he was visited by monk Fafnutios. Saint Enufrios' hair and beard reached to the ground and his body, due to a long period of nakedness, was covered with long hair. If you see the icon of Saint Enufrios, a lot of you will see full of hair. All his hair was white as snow and his entire appearance was brilliant, divine and amazing. When Saint Enufrios saw Fafnutios, he called him by his name. Saint Enufrios then recounted to Fafnutios his life in the wilderness. Remember, this is fourth century saint. We're talking about over 1,600 years ago. Venerable Fafnutios then asked Saint Enufrios how he received Holy Communion in the desert. Because a lot of those monks, they weren't priests. They never had liturgies. They were monks. Saint Enufrios replied that each Sunday, God's angel would bring Holy Communion to all the ascetics that lived in the desert. The angel would commune them with his own hand. After this, they would be filled with spiritual consolation and the energy, the grace in other words, to continue their struggles in the desert. Now, what do you think? A bit unbelievable? Amazing? Would you have doubt? Would you have doubt, Haralambos? No. no doubt. Very strong. Who would have doubt after reading that? A little bit of doubt. Just passing, just anything could be, and even we could be attacked with unbelief. As Saint Nicodemus says, yes, we can be tempted with not believing those things of the ancient saints. So, Let's have a look at an example of Saint Seraphim of Viritsa, 1866 to 1949, a priest monk that lived in Russia during the communist period. Two weeks before his repose, Father Seraphim told Father Alexius, the priest of the Church of the All-Holy All Virgin Mary of Kazan in Viritsa, Viritsa, is that his name? Anyway, that the All-Holy Virgin Mary commanded that he commune every day of the Immaculate Mysteries. Now, you notice that the Mother of God did not express a new dogma. You will notice in the Saint Ephraim the New of Neomakri, he didn't express some new dogma. Saints Raphael, Nixon, Irene did not express some new dogma. In the Roman Catholic Church, it's always new dogma. No, no new dogma. And here, the mother of God appeared. But what was the message? That she was born without the original sin? No. It says, she said to commune every day. Father Alexis related, I commune the elder every night according to his word. 
Once, though, I fell asleep and did not hear the alarm clock. I awoke at four in the morning. Usually I communed him at two. I took the precious gifts and literally ran to the elder's house. When I entered the house and then in the elder's cell, he ran into the cell, he was lying on his bed, the elder. I asked his forgiveness, but Father Seraphim told me, who's, who's a saint, do not worry, Father Alexei, the angels already have communed me. I looked at his face, which was beaming with light, and realised that what he was saying was true. He died in 1949, so this miracle happened two weeks before he died. That's 1949. But I have another example for you of someone who m m many of you don't even know who Saint Seven Veritz is, but I'm sure you know about the next person because of the influence he's had on the Orthodox Church throughout the world, especially in North America. Let's have a look. On a feast day, Elder Joseph sent Father Asenius to receive communion at one of the church, one of the chapels there. He said to him, you go, I'm not coming because I can't even drag my feet there. I'll stay here and continue saying the prayer. When he says the prayer, it means the Jesus prayer. You go to church, Father Senior, you go, I'm staying. Thus he remained in his little cell with sadness because he would not be able to receive Holy Communion that day. Elder Joseph loved to commune every day. They had liturgy every day. After Father Senus left, Yerunda, meaning elder, remained hunched over in his dark little cell while saying the Jesus prayer with his noose in his heart. Now, what's the noose in his heart? It's a very deep topic. If you want to know what that is, I'm not going to tell you because I don't know. I don't have it. And I'm not going to attempt to explain something that I don't have. There are a lot of people on the internet, YouTube, of priests who are there talking about the noose and the breathing and you breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and then you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you said, then the grace will come and your mind will join with your heart. And they go into these details on YouTube. Of course, they don't tell you that the people that listen to their advice end up in crazy houses. They don't tell you that. That's not for us. We cannot get to that level. Why? Because there are five levels of prayer which I did in talk 41. Saint Theophanes Crucis, Saint Nicodemus. You pray with your mouth. That's the first level. Second one, you pray with your mouth that you understand what you're saying. That's the second level. Third level, you pray with your mouth and you understand what you're saying and you feel what you're reading. That's the third level. The fourth level is the prayer of the heart and things like that, and then it goes on to theosis. Saint Theophan the Recluse says, for people who don't have an elder who has learnt this from another elder, they should not attempt that. They should stay at the level which is what we're all meant to do, including myself, Yes, I'm a monk, whatever. I don't go past that. I don't go past that. My wish is to read, understand what I'm reading, and feel it, which a lot of times I fail as well. 
That's it. That's the level. To be able to do the Jesus prayer with the noose and things like that, doesn't mean we can't do it. We can still do it. All of us can do it. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're doing that. No breathings. What you, you just concentrate on what you're saying, which is, Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge Christ as God. Have mercy on me that because we're sinful, because we're scared we're going to go to hell, have mercy on me. Save me. This comes from our experience of our sins and it comes from our experience of our falls and our passions and our weaknesses. That's what St. Paisa says. Don't do that prayer unless it's based on a feeling of your sinfulness. Only then is it safe. I heard someone on the internet the other day, there's a prayer or something like that. There was a priest and he was saying, and when you pray, American, when you pray and you suddenly feel that you're being lost in the words, you leave the words to the sign and you run with it, you go with the grace and cut yourself off and feel the grace. And I said, wow, this, what is that? And that's what people are teaching now. No, not for us. For us to be able to do that, you need to have certain conditions. One, you need a God-bearing elder or eldress who has that already. Number two, you have to live in circumstances in which there are no distractions. Like Elder Joseph lived in his Kilian Manathos, there was no distractions. And number four, you've got to keep the images in your mind clear. How are we going to keep our minds clear when they're full of images that we've burnt into, they've been burnt into our minds from the television? I would never even attempt those prayers. Because if I try to do that, I just have flashes of everything that I saw when I was young. Distractions of the day, that news, what that person said, what I saw, something on YouTube. Distraction. You can't do that prayer like that. That's preless, deception. Stick to what we've been told to do. Read them or say it where you say it with your mouth, you understand it and you feel it and the basis must be repentance, humility. Then that's that. What do you think, Father? Do you think it's blany, as we say in Greek? Deception. How do you say it in your language? Prelest? Prelest. Prelest. <coughs> I think it's... If I can add... Mm-hmm. I agree with you that it has to be done with repentance, totally, as a base, and as a safe way of practicing. But, and I agree that if people try to reach something which is beyond their means with the aim of getting, becoming a somebody or something, or getting these gifts. With the noose going into the heart. <laughs> but I think the Holy Fathers also speak that that's a gift that happens later. That the, the, we cannot bring the mind to the heart artificially, even if we can, it's nothing there. It's darkness. So it would happen, it happens naturally to somebody, they say that it can happen to lay people and they've been fine yeah, as a gift, given based on their repentance and things like that. 
we cannot use mechanical means and we cannot dictate to God that he's going to give us that. That's correct. St. Porphyrus was given that gift like that. And a lot of them have been given the gift. That's true. Lay people in today's world cannot reach those levels even as a gift. It's dangerous because God will not give it unless they are um, in the circumstances for it. This, that. They might reach certain touches, little, little things, little things, but not the level of what Elder Joseph had, what the level of Elder Ephraim had. But yes, at times you might have sparks, but God does not give a lot of that because the person will fall into deception. And that's why it's safer. Say, for example, once someone came to me and said, a monastic actually uh, contacted me and said that they're feeling the prayer is happening by itself. I said, oh, I'm not really experienced in these things. And I became a bit alarmed because I didn't know what to say. What happens if I say something wrong? But I think God, because I was humbled to say, I don't know, as soon as we say, I don't know, then a lot of time God's going to enlighten us. And then I said to this person, tell me a little bit about it, what you're experiencing and things like that. Anyway, uh, he still believed that he had it. That was one of the things which I explained to him. The fact that you don't have any doubt is already telling me that something's wrong because the true holy person, a person who's really reached high levels of prayer, is always down. And if you even read the lives of saints, they experienced some things and they said, oh, is that from God? They used to go to ask elders. I experienced this. I saw that. Is that what I felt? Was that from God? And things like that. Well, he didn't doubt that what he had was the Jesus prayer. And later on with time, with commemorations, etc., etc., it all just fell apart. And he said, thank you. It was deception. Even though he says, but I feel. I said, do you feel repentant? Yes, yes, I feel repentant. But... Unfortunately, we can sometimes say... The se- Sorry? They're all urged uh, for everybody to practice. Even from- yes, we are urged to do the Jesus prayer, but not to go to those levels which are described in the Philokalia and the ones that the saints did, which is where you put your noose into your heart and things like that. We are supposed to just feel... This is by Saint on the Recluse. And Elder Paisio said the same. He never once, you go and read all his, all his teachings, you will never see him teach about that. He was so sober, very discerning. He just said, based on repentance, and when you say the prayer, which he urged, which I also urge, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Meaning, Lord Jesus Christ, you are the only one that can save mankind. I am sinful. I am full of passions. I am doomed for hell. Forgive me, save me. That's it. That's the safest. When you start feeling experiences of tinglings and fruit tingles and other things like that, then that's time to let's fly with me, as they say the song says. And you don't want to take off because some were even lifted up, thought they were being lifted up by angels, they'll be lifted up by demons. What do demons do? Bang. So when we grovel on the ground, that's why I like to call myself the mud priest. Mud. Mud priest, meaning that I am wallowing in the passions. I am not spiritual as such, but I'm wallowing. I'm like down on the ground. That's safer because 
when you're on the ground, you can't fall. You're already down. But when we start having high opinions of ourselves and we raise ourselves up within ourselves, that's when the devils come and the higher you are, when they finally let us go, meaning spiritually, bang on the ground. So that's the safest way. You should listen to talk 41. I was amazed myself when I did that talk because I was saying um, a few days before, I was saying, I have to present this now. I'm doing this talk in the Jesus Prayer. And I still don't understand. I truly did not. I still don't understand where does this take place for the layperson and how to explain it. And I had in a few days, I had to do this. I had to do this talk on the Jesus Prayer and say, what it's, how do we do it? And I always wanted to do it soberly. And as I was contemplating this, I said, oh, I'm going to ring up someone. I didn't know who to ring. I didn't know who to ring. I was, but I showed the humility and I said, I don't know how I'm going to do that talk. And suddenly a thought came. Unseen warfare. I remember from years ago, there was a chapter on prayer. I go, oh, I'll just go and get that book. And I looked it up and there it was, the five levels of prayer and explained everything beautiful and I presented and people that have heard that explanation said that's the best explanation they've ever heard. I'm not saying that to praise myself. I was astounded myself. Uh, it's very, very important. Be sober. Don't seek, as you said, experiences. Don't force God to bring it. Sometimes God will give us little experiences, but even then be scared. The saints were scared. They had experiences and they weren't even sure. Is that from God? And they were saints. And they went to elders and said, tell me what I got. And the elders would help them. And if the elders were inexperienced themselves and they weren't sure, what would happen was that God would enlighten the person or the elder to say, that is wrong. Even Starit Siluanos, when he was seeing demons, he wasn't sure why he was seeing demons. And he went to the elders and he said to the elders, um, why am I seeing demons? He was being terrorised by them. This is the man Athos, the Russian saint of St. Padalima Monastery. He died in the 1930s, I think. St. Siluan, that's your bishop's named after. And uh, he went to the elders and said, why am I seeing these visions of demons? And they didn't even answer him. I don't think they even knew, maybe. And one day... Praying in the wrong way. That's correct. And one day he, he heard uh, a voice or something saying to him, because he was saying, why? Why am I suffering, God? Why am I suffering? And he heard some voice or something saying, the proud always suffer. And from that he worked out that his attitude, his prayer life, things like that, was based on pride. But he became a great saint later on, but with humility. But he was in the right circumstances. He was in a monastery, services every day, fasting. He had elders around him, etc. So he was in a good uh, atmosphere. I don't think it's very easy for us to reach very high levels of prayer when we look at the internet and t this is unheard of for an orthodox saint. They eliminated images, not create. Every time we look at these things on the television, the internet, we are imprinting ourselves images. This is diametrically opposed to pure prayer. I probably agree that they, wouldn't, they weren't seeking high levels of prayer. They weren't going saying, OK, now I'm going to practice this, this and this. Who, the saints? Yeah. No. No, but they were in the right atmosphere, they were obedient, 
and they had elders who had some experience, etc. No, no, anyone who says, I'm going to now do the Jesus prayer without a guide, they're deceived. Thanks for that. Um, just finish this up. Elder Joseph. Okay, as he sat there weeping and moaning, suddenly his soul filled with light. The ceiling opened and a young man with wings descended and stood before him. It was an angel of the Lord. I could barely see him, Yerunda later told us, since his face was like lightning. The angel put his hand in, the, in his bosom and pulled out a beautiful little round box that was overflowing with otherworldly light. In other words, light not of this world, divine light. The angel carefully opened the box and he motioned to him to prepare himself as he took a piece of the holy mysteries, the body and blood of Christ. In Elder Joseph's own words, this is what happened. Quote, Overwhelmed by both the influence of this spiritual wonder and the mysterious grace of the vision, without thinking, I involuntarily realised what God wanted me to do. I opened my mouth and the angel gave me communion, saying, The servant of God, Monk Joseph, receives the body and blood of Christ. Then the angel smiled modestly, closed the box and descended through the ceiling. After this, it was dark in my soul once again, so I lowered my head and began to pray again. I felt more joy, bliss and grace than I ever experienced. For an entire week, I did not feel the need for food or drink. It was as if my regular bodily functions had stopped. That's end of quote. When a modern-day Christian reads that famous ascetics in the desert had been counted worthy of receiving communion from angels, he might doubt and the truthfulness of such accounts. This is what Elder Frem's writing in his book, My Elder Joseph. This comes from the book. This is Elder, I think, Elder Frem speaking. Uh, he might doubt the truthfulness of such accounts because he has never met such people and because of today's prevailing spiritual slackness and neglect. Because people are slack and neglectful, a lot of these things don't occur much. Yet, behold, that even in our day, there have been brave souls with a fiery yearning for God, deep humility and great ascesis and self-denial who have been counted worthy of the same gifts as of ancient times, like St. Nufrios. In this manner, Yerunda's example teaches us with a powerful voice, Yerunda Yosef, in other words, this is what Elder Frem is saying. In this manner, Elder Joseph's example teaches us with a powerful voice that sanctity and the, and the charismas of the great Holy Fathers are achievable in every era, even in our own. And that's the last one I want to say. That's Elder Joseph, whose spiritual fruits have now changed so much and in some ways we can say saved orthodoxy and people might say, oh, but that's for the Greeks. No, Elder Joseph's been read not only by Greeks but by Russians and Romanians and Bulgarians, etc., and English in orthodox churches in America, etc. And his fruits... Who's his spiritual children? Elder Haralambos, the initiatus of the monastery of the Nusil. And then there's another elder Joseph who was a monk, a spiritual child of the original elder Joseph, 
who was the spiritual father of the monastery of Atopedi, who now have hundreds of monks there, and they are influencing uh, monasticism in Russia. Russians are coming or going or they're, they're going, asking for help of how to lead a monastic life. Then we have Elder Ephraim, another spiritual child of Elder Joseph. This has just changed the world. So when Elder Ephraim says that Elder Joseph was communed by an angel, yes, he was, and it was in our times. So that's the end of the talk. That's why it's important to read the modern saints in our times, or close to our times, so that we can then have more faith when we read the ancient saints. I didn't do it justice. The thing on the prayer, I had, um, I built that up on the day with quotes of different, different fathers, modern fathers, and I was able to present it. Now I just had to do it from memory, and it doesn't, yeah. But it's good to, it's good to read. Yeah, but the experiences, the experiences that some people lead are very minimal, uh, can be dangerous, and, um, and can be given, especially if someone's leading an intense life. But this is what I notice. Some people say to me, I'm experiencing rich prayer, etc., etc., and yet they don't have an ounce of obedience. They trust themselves. Impossible. God would never, ever, ever give his grace to someone who doesn't even have a sense of humility and obedience. Impossible. If he does that, it's like he's saying, um, I reward you for being disobedient and for having self-trust. Impossible. Impossible. It can't happen. These things are given to those, and St. Porfirios, for example, the reason why he was given grace and St. Paisos was from their obedience, from their lack of they didn't trust themselves, etc. This is very important. And that's why, for example, even in monasteries, they never gave blessings for monks to, or nuns to go and live on their own as ascetics unless they had gone through the stages for years of obedience to their elders. If they never had obedience, what would happen was that when they would go to the desert, the demons would trick them. That's it. The reason why a lot of times we're tricked by the demons is because we lack obedience and self-trust. I have a lot of people that telephone me or write to me and they ask for help and they fall into sins and this, like really like pornography is this, like a lot of stuff like that. And I know that I, I say to them, I can't help you. You will never get better. They said, why? I said, because you don't have an ounce of humility. You have no obedience. Nothing. They, wouldn't, they can't even be obedient to their boss. They can't be obedient to anyone. They're just so proud, so much self-trust. These are all cancer. Like, you're not going to have a healthy body with cancer. And yet, self-trust, self-will. Read The Unseen Warfare. In the first chapters, it talks about if a person has self-trust in his own opinion and disobedience, etc. Not blind obedience, just normal obedience. Simple things, even simple things. A husband can be obedient even to his wife. The wife can say, um, oh darling, I think I've got an idea and I'll tell about this. 
And the husband can say, oh, that's a good idea. Why don't I do it? No, but instead, no, I don't want to do it. The woman, oh, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And then they go and they do the Jesus prayer and they think they're going to reach high levels. I don't think so. How long? Yeah. So are there any questions? I have a question. Mm. You always do have questions. That's good. Go. Firstly, that is the most ridiculous thing, not, not, not your question. They say if they have one miracle, they're called blessed. If they have two miracles, then they're called saints. What? Sorry, um, our saints do miracles so many before they die and after they die. Like, we're talking about so many miracles. And they're looking for one miracle. Elder Porfirio said it clearly. The Roman Church cannot produce the saints that are produced in the Orthodox Church. They can't. Because they, are, they do not have the grace that the Orthodox Church offers. And that's why they don't have incorrupt relics. They say they do, but something's wrong there too. I get letters from them, from Roman Catholics. I don't know why they listen to my talks. And they uh, write to me and I was offended that you said this and I was offended about this. And uh, um, I write back and say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, but that's what we believe. You believe what you believe and we believe what we believe. I'm not going to enter into dialogues. It's not, I, haven't got, I haven't got the energy. Got to eat more Cocoa Pops to be able to do that. Okay. Uh, any... The church only confirms what the people want. Yes. The people want. Yes. Because I remember with um, Saint uh, of Blessed Father Seraphim Rose when we went to visit his monastery, uh, they were asking if um, uh, if there was any miracles in our um, life, um, and I didn't know if they if it was part of that procedure. I don't know. So you asked them one. I oh, have you experienced any miracles from the prayers of Father Seraphim? Yeah. Yes, I wasn't sure. Father Seraphim had full humility. He was humble. And of course, anyone that's humble like that, God gives grace. Because it says God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. God will not give his grace to the proud, but he gives it to the humble. And today, people have self-trust, self-will, and they're just disobedient. And that's, unfortunately, things that don't go for spiritual life. It could even be obedient to your boss at work, things like that. Okay, any questions? What's your name? Michael. Michael, yes. Um, so, reading the lives of saints, you love to have a particular saint that you really... Yes, or that's an, that. Or an elder... That you really uh, resonate with and that you... 
Saint uh, John, I think, or some other saint, I think it was Saint John, said that we always will come across a saint that we feel close to. And there's no reason why we can't focus our prayers on that saint too, because we feel something. You can read a life and say, I really am absorbed with this saint, I really love this saint. And obviously, you would, say, you would pray to that saint, yes. Um, but you don't just centre, you, you've got to read other lives too, but. But that's, um, that's true. We do feel, I think I did that in a couple of talks before. It's one, I think St. John said it, I think, maybe. Anyone else? Benny. Nothing at all. You look happy. So the lives of saints which I recommend, which I've said before and I'll say it again and again, which is good, is firstly the prologue. Prologue means in is a Russian, it's a Slavonic word. Prologue means synaxarion, so which means the collection of the lives of saints. Um, we Greeks say synaxarion, Serbians, and um, that's why Saint Nicola called it the prologue of Ochrid. He wrote it when he was at Ochrid. So it's the prologue of Ochrid, two volume set by Sebastian Press. Firstly, I would recommend that if anyone's going to start reading the lives of saints, they start with those two books. Then there is another set produced by Alexander Press Canada, and that's called the Synaxarian, the lives of the saints of the Orthodox Church. Those lives are longer. They've got around seven books, and the books are thicker. And they've got January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Then they've got one supplement at the end. It's a little book. That's the seventh book. I always encourage people to get that next. That's Alexander Press. You can find that on the internet. And they're in Canada. They are excellent books. But if you're not used to it, you'd start first with the prologue. So the prologue's around three pages per day. I would say there's the lives, a couple of pages, then there's a consideration, they call it something else now, and then they've got uh, a homily at the end. What I would say for those who are not really used to it and they're a bit, you know, they find it difficult to keep up with it all, read the lives first. Just do that every day. Just the lives. Do that, even for a year. Just get used to it, get used to it, get used to it. And then you might say, okay, I've done this now, it's, my, it's become a habit. I'll now I'll go to, I'll, cons I'll do the next section as well, which is the, con the consideration, what they call, or to contemplate or something. I might do that, you might do that for another three, four, five months, whatever, until it's part of your system, part of your... When you try and do a lot, what happens is you give it up at the end. Just even a little bit like that. As long as it's constant every day, then you might include the homily at the end, then you can go to the other one, which is the Synaxarian of Distributor Alexander Press. Then there's another one, which I'll talk about next time, which is the really thick books per month, about this thick. That's the big guns. That's full accounts of the lives. But we'll do that next time. Okay, God willing, we will do part two of this. We're going to read Ancient with Modern Saints. One more talk. And after that, Again, God willing, we will do the talk. That's uh, what's this? Eighty-one. This talk. Eighty-two will be part two of this talk, and eighty-three will be the one where we said where we have um, despair. 
that we can't live like the saints or something like that. So that will be another one or two talks. Then we'll do the fantasy ones. And that might take us to the end of the year. Okay, stand up, please. Through the prayers of our Holy Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy and save us. Amen. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We'll give thanks unto the Lord and call upon his holy name. God is the Lord and hath appeared unto us. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. All the nations come surround about about the name of the Lord and hold them up. God is the Lord and hath appeared unto us. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is the Lord doing his marvelous in our eyes. God is the Lord and hath appeared unto us. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. When I was baptized in the Jordan, O oh Lord, the worship of the Trinity was made manifest. For the voice of the Father bear witness to thee, calling thee his beloved Son. And the Spirit in the form of a dove confirmed the certainty of the word. O Christ our God, who has appeared and has enlightened the world, glory be to thee. Eni ordani baptizomenu sukiria, itis triados epaneroti proskinisis. Tu gariendi torosi poni prose martirisi, agapiton se io non omazusa, ketopnema eni di peristeras, eveveu tu logu toas vales. O epifanis Christeo Deus, keton cosmon fortis astoxasi. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Like a spiritual day star in heaven's firmament, that disencompass the whole world and its enlightenment source. Hence thy name is glorified throughout the east and west. For thou didst shine forth with the grace of the Son of Righteousness, O John, our beloved shepherd. Wherefore cease not to entreat Christ, that he show mercy and redeem our souls. Both now and ever and the ages of ages. Amen. Compass with perils, let us feed to the icon of God's pure mother and her infinite goodness. While crying from the depths with grief and pain of soul, swiftly hearken to our prayers, O Immaculate Virgin. For thou hast been rightly called, quick to hear for thy mercies. For thou art our defender in all need, our ready helper in every adversity. Traversing the water as on dry land, and thereby escaping from the toils of Egypt's land, the Israelites cried aloud, proclaiming, Unto our God and Redeemer, let us now sing. Most Holy Mother of God, save us, as I undertake to extol in His thy numberless marvels and divinely wrought miracles. I pray thee with all my heart, O Lady, Grant me thy grace and assistance so quick to hear. Most Holy Mother of God, save us, 
What wonders thine icon hath brought to pass, for from it, O Virgin, thou didst cry after him that served, the common refractory to correct him, and thenceforth thou hast been known as the quick to hear. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. O maid who can tell of thy wondrous sign, the monk that obeyed not, that is chastened and rendered blind, and then at his genuine repentance, thou didst restore him completely and grant him sight, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Rejoice and be glad, O divine abode, of Dohiariu, which possesses the queen of all, a strength and invincible protectress, as she herself hath unfailingly promised thee. Of the vault of the heavens art thou, O Lord, fashioner, so to of the church art thou founder, do thou establish me in love and love for thee, who art the height of things sought for, and self of the faithful, O thou only friend of man. Most holy mother of God, save us. Thou hast made childless couples prolific in progeny. Thou hast made the barren rejoicing, children are quick to hear, granting their heart's desire to them that sought thine assistance, who would not be awestruck beholding thy mighty signs. Most holy mother of God, save us. O Bulgaria preacheth the mercies and miracles that thy holy icon had brought home. Mary, thou quick to hear, throughout the east and west, thou art made known as a fountain, pouring forth thy graces on all who invoke thy name. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. From the burden of cancer, oppressing her grievously, at thy visitation a modest woman was swiftly healed. Wherefore the sufferer, being released from her anguish, gave thee thanks, O Virgin, declaring her gratitude. Both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages, amen. With what beauty thine icon hath wondrously been adorned, brighter than the rays of the sun, it ever and lightneth all. Who then would not extol that which the heavenly angels fly about with fear, O pure virgin, quick to hear? O quick to hear, O virgin mother of God, hearken to thy servants, who in painful maladies and sorrows cry out to thee, and save us from all kinds of danger. Drive off the clouds of dark despondency far from my soul, O lady, and grant joy of heart unto thy servants, O men most pure. For thou art the vessel of gladness. Encompassed about with stripes and walls on every side, from visible foes and them that are invisible, we cry out with fervor to thee, O Lady, thou who art quick to heat, break their dust with thy mighty strength and grant us a supplicants a peaceful life. I have hearkened and heard, O Lord, of thy dispensations, my source and mystery, and I came to knowledge of thy works, and I send the praise of thy divinity. Most holy Mother of God, save us. To the four quarters of the earth is thy wondrous icon made famous for its signs, and all men with heart and mouth and mind sing the praise of her who is so quick to hear. Most holy Mother of God, save us. 
by appearing a queen of old, both by means of dreams and swimming when wide awake. Moved by mercy that the devil works, strange and awesome wonders in the world and time. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, who hath ever invoked thy name, when in any danger, affliction or distress, and had not been swiftly heard by thee, since thou art the quick to hear of men most pure. Both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages, amen. Monastery most venerable, of the Hiyadi, what blessedness is thine, since thou hast the switches past all price, the honoured icon of the Quiti. Lord, enlighten us by thy precepts and by thy commands, and by the power of thy lofty arm, bestow thy peace upon us, all, since thou art friend of man. Most holy mother of God, save us. Worthless as I am, how quick to hear and queen of all. Shall I dare look on thine or spotless form? With sinful eyes default by gazing on ungodly things. Most holy mother of God, save us. Both the land and sea, loudly preach the signs and miracles. Brought by thine icon, all that quick to hear. For both have verily enjoyed the wondrous gifts of grace. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Thou dost bring to light him that robbed his neighbor of his wealth, and thou must justly just restore again, O Virgin Mother, what was taken from its owner's hands, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Like a brilliant light, thy fair likeness is most hallowed form. Dost make those looking on it shine with light, and dost compel them to embrace it and to worship it. Entreaty do I pour forth unto the Lord, and to him do I proclaim all my sorrows for many woes, fill my heart to repletion, and all my life unto Hades and now draw nigh. Like Jonas do I pray to thee, raise me up from corruption, O Lord my God. Most holy mother of God, save us. O Lady, O Virgin Mary, full of grace, as a loving and affectionate mother, thou once didst call to thyself thy young servant, and didst deliver him out of thy hands of thieves. May we thy servants also find thy maternal compassions to rescue us. Most Holy Mother of God, save us. Thy wretched and worthless servants have none else, no protection, help, or refuge beside thee. Wherefore, we thought of our heart, O pure lady, we cry, deliver thy sacred and holy flock, and all we faithfully to thee from all danger, distress, and adversity. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. From sea, storm, and swelling waves of certain death, as I save them that invoke thy divine name, preserve us also from our destruction, and from the shipwreck of soul in eternal deeps, and bring us to the tranquil port of salvation, O Mother of God Most High, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Salvation hath all the world found thee to be, and a swift and fervent help in temptations. Wherefore, O Virgin, from all the four quarters, then flee to thy holy icon, O quick to hear, and all find thee to be in truth, refuge, comfort, and certain deliverance. O quick to hear, O Virgin Mother of God, hearken to thy servants, who in painful maladies and sorrows cry out to thee, and save us from all kinds of danger. 
Drive up the clouds of dark despondency far from us, O Lady, and great joy impart unto thy servants, O may most pure. For thou art the vessel of gladness. Most grievously tossed upon the stormy sea of life, and all overwhelmed with swelling waves of sufferings. We take flight, O Virgin, to thy blessed icon as to a tranquil port. Wherefore stretch forth thy hand to us, and save us from tempests, as thy son say, Peter. Come, let us all praise in song the Theotokos' icon. Riley feigned as quick to him, which does shine majestically like a brilliant moon. Sending forth shining rays, lighting earth and heaven, that bright star whereby we set our course unto the God of all that resplendent be blazing forth with virtues as with many stars and the boss set high in the firmament, bright with many colours, by whom the Lord doth ever rescue us out of the dire and destroying flood. Mary, through whom we are saved. Kindly hearken and fulfill all the requests of thy servants, who in faith flee unto thee, and invoke thy mighty help and thy swift defence. Hope you may quick to hear, spotless Lady Virgin, thou whose praise is sung by all the world. Come and deliver us from all tribulation, from all disease. From sufferings and misery, both of soul and body, O bride of God, that we might extol thee, while glorifying Christ our Son and God, whom do thou earnestly pursue, that he save our souls from death. Once from out of Judea did the children go down to the land of Babylon, the fire of the furnace, they trampled down one chanting by their faith in the Trinity. O God of our fathers, blessed art thou, most holy mother of God, save us. Thou, O Virgin, hast granted, blinded us wondrous power to see the light again. So also now enlighten our eyes of soul and body, that we also might sing the praise of all thine august and wonderful works. Most holy Mother of God, save us. To the deaf hast thou granted power to hear, O Immaculate Mary, quick to hear. So wondrously now open our ears of soul and body, that we also might sing the praise of all thine august and wonderful works. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. From all papists and ruin hast thou ever delivered all them that fled to thee. So rescue us now also from every harm and evil, that we also must sing the praise of all thine august and wonderful works. Both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages, amen. Paralytics unnumbered, hast thou strengthened and healed, O Our Lady, quick to heal. So heal our souls and bodies from every kind of palsy, that we also must sing the praise of all thy august and wonderful works. The King of heaven, whom all the hosts of angels hymn with their chants and praises of glory, praise ye and exalt him to the ages forever. 
Most Holy Mother of God, save us from every sickness. O Virgin, keep us safe and sound through thy ferment and unceasing protection, saving us as thou hast saved so many through the ages. Most Holy Mother of God, save us. Thy holy icon, O Holy Lady, quick to heed, have been shown to be a wellspring of wonders. Whence all those of thirst draw forth relief of their affliction. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. O Theotokos, let us reveal what hath been lost, and thou give us joy of heart to the finder. For thy grace is great, that thou dost show forth in thine icon. For now endeavor, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. O Sovereign Lady, O Victi, hear at thy command, all the elements obey and are subject. And thou dost deliver from their rage all that invoke thee. Most rightly we confess thee as a gospel giver, with who through thee have been saved, all the virgin most pure. We quite a bodiless angels, thee do we magnify. Most holy mother of God, save us. Come eagerly assemble, all ye ranks of before the faint and august icon speedy to hear the universal physician freely is found therein. Most holy mother of God, save us. O quick to hear thine icon, truly hath been shone forth. Upon we seal of one's grace, cleansing body and soul, of all diseases and passions, for those who come with faith. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, thine icon which has shone forth from the Chiaria, like a bright beacon ablaze with the splendor of hills, enlighteneth all that sincerely, honor it faithfully, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. O ye that walk in perils, diligently hasten unto the icon of her, quick to hear every cry. Ye shall receive her abounding graces of miracles. It is truly me to Of defense, O unwedded bride, 
There we plead for refuge in dangers and temptations, and we are swiftly rescued from every threat of harm. Now the time of need is upon us all, now a day of darkness falleth over our hearts and souls. Now we need the succor of virtue and for the peril, stretch forth thy hand and save us to seek thy certain help. Heaven hath thy body and spotless soul, shining bright as lightning. Yet, O Virgin, the holy house of the Giyari, O possessor, thy bright image, invoked and celebrated, as truly quick to him. Look with thy compassion and tender love on them that encompass thine old gods, thy gone in their trust. Calling out with fervor upon thy great compassion, fulfill thy peace and asking, very exhortable. In the hour of death, as I breathe my last, may I find thine icon to console me in that distress. Come, O gracious Virgin, with cheerful gaze of mercy, and drive away the demons seeking eternal prey. I am peace with longing for the omega, yearning is enkindled as I look on the majesty of thy holy icon, replete with grace and beauty, and I cannot be sated with magnifying thee. What shall we the miserable supplicants render thee, O Virgin, for thy grace has shown unto us? Through thy holy icon, which thou bestowest on us, as great celestial riches in us a O ye arrays of angelic hosts, with the holy Baptist, the apostles, twelve numbered men, all the saints together, as well as God forgive, I pray, make ye intercession for our deliverers. When I was baptized in the Jordan, O Lord, the worship of the Trinity was made manifest. For the voice of the Father bear witness to thee, calling thee his beloved Son, and the Spirit in the form of a dove confirmed the certainty of the word. O Christ our God, who has appeared and has enlightened the world, glory be to thee. <laughs> Tu ganas ni todo Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Like a spiritual day, in heaven's firmament, Thou didst encompass the whole world, and didst enlighten men's souls. Hence thy name is glorified throughout the east and west. 
and love to thy godly icon, O Virgin, O Sovereign Queen, quick to hear, rescue from diseases both of body and of soul, from invasion of enemies, from pestilence, famine, earthquake, fire, and every other dire calamity, so that being saved from destruction, we may glorify thy divine name, kept in thy protection and thy sympathy. Joy of all that sorrow art thou, and of the oppressed, a protectress and nurture of all the poor. Comfort unto thee, a strange dust of thou of the blind, visitation of all the sick, a shelter and succor. Unto those brought down by pain, helper of orphan ones, Mother of God in the highest, Art thou, O Immaculate Maiden, Hasten, we beseech thee, to redeem thy slaves. Lady, do thou receive the supplications of thy slaves, And deliver us from every affliction and necessity. Unto thee do I commit mine every hope, O Mother of God, God be under thy shelter.